welcome to this week's episode of the Back to Back Films Podcast. This week we're covering Yojimbo and Moonrise Kingdom, focusing on auteur theory. As always, in order to have the best discussion possible, we recommend that you watch the two films we'll be discussing before listening to the episode because of potential spoilers. I'm your host, Keith. This is Byron. And I'm Jacob. All right, how are you guys doing tonight? Any updates? Anything good happening? Oh, man, not too much. Uh, been um, been chilling. Been busy, though. Been busy, but not with anything really film-related, unfortunately. <laughs> you were doing, like, photography, though, right? Yeah, it's true. I was doing a few, like, little, little just passion stuff. Like, you know, oh, that's a cool shot. I got to take a picture of that. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and then I just enjoy, like, you know, editing a little bit. Like, not quite Photoshop, but, you know, stuff like that. Just for fun instagram stuff <laughs> oh yeah i like how, i like how you do some of your footage it's uh or um some of your photos because uh, they're like really contrasty and like they're like obviously photoshopped but not like in a bad way you know what i mean like it's oh, like sweet, sweet. very like clearly manipulated in an artistic way there's something kind of nice about that oh cool yeah because like my goal isn't not to put like just filters on it you know because like that's such a i don't know that's what everybody does you know like, oh yeah like it I don't know. It's it's like the it's the non-creative people that just put a filter on it, you know. But <laughs> I like to like that's me. I just <laughs> filter it. I just throw whatever pre-made <laughs> filter. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's. Fun. I mean, I'm not like anti, completely anti-filter. I mean, because it does make other people's photos like better some, to some degree, you know. Like if if they're not, if they're not really into you know taking photos or something. But I like to just manipulate it and. If I do put filters on it, put a couple different filters and manipulate the filter, you know, because mm-hmm. most of the time you can have like, you know, take the vignette away, put the contrast up, put the, you know, um, mess with the reds, greens and blues, of course, and stuff like that. So like most of that stuff that I post on Instagram and Facebook, I just do. It's all on my phone primarily and i just use like three different apps and i just kind of go back and forth back and forth so each photo takes you know anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes depending on how much i want to spend on it but it's kind of fun <laughs> little hobby yeah dude, that's rad it's cool um how about you jacob uh well i i uh just did the phoenix film festival um so our film showed there laser pen is what it's called and uh the, the showing went okay um the so there's some stuff wrong with our sound, like the sound quality, not like terribly wrong with it, but uh, there there was some issues with like the background noise being too like up too high, and it's kind of funny because we went and shot out in this desert area, and it was incredibly windy, so we were doing the sound, and sound guys like. I don't think this is even worth recording because it's like it sounds so bad like it doesn't sound like anything like it's we didn't have like the proper like wind sock with us like the big zeppelin one uh we just had a regular uh wind sock I'm not sure of the exact like a fuzzy one like a sock yeah like an actual sock yeah yeah. we just had a an actual (laughs) Hanes sock so it was it looked really sad if you were a champion, then you would have been you would have been fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like wrong, br- wrong brand. Reebok is a good brand. Uh, cha- yeah, champion. You said that one. That was good too. Um, but yeah, we are not uh, paid endorsements. These, these are not paid endorsements. 
but it's funny though day, because they be. <laughs> it's funny because there is a company called Bombus Socks that loves to sponsor podcasts. Like a lot of the podcasts what? I listen to will have this. Yeah, what? it's called Bombus Socks, and they're always like, "Oh, I have a Bombus Socks, and I love them. They're the greatest thing God. ever." Keith, you are the you are so smart with how you segue into our commercials that that people don't know that they're commercials on our podcast but really we're getting right. paid like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars just to mention mamba socks so i like how you oh. integrate it and now we're just going to keep <laughs> talking about it because we get paid what like a hundred million dollars for each minute we talk about mamba socks so we could i could go all day <laughs> yeah right you know what i mean a couple hundred million yeah. we could end the podcast right and that's here just the one sponsor i mean we're not even talking about all the others we have to <laughs> yeah like yeah beats obviously uh <laughs> you know there's there's a whole lot not of only those. beats but we also have p diddies too you know oh, man. <laughs> those are the best. and twinkies i don't know how but they just were like hey we're we're bringing hostess was like we're bringing twinkies back okay Sounds cool. You, you need know, us for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know who we need to get sponsored by is like Sennheiser or something, though. Give us yeah, free man. mics for this. That'd be <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Um, so, like, how did how how did the audience react to the film? I mean, like, how was the response? Um, the response was was fine. It was actually the first time I had seen it in a theater because I had just been out of town when they were showing it, um, like originally and stuff. So. The audience tend to like it. I mean, it's it's a pretty, like, it's a sketch, or it's not a sketch. It's a uh, comedy, like, spy spoof. So, like, it's it's sort of like the movie Spy with uh, Melissa McCarthy. So, it's, it's just kind of like a comedy that is making fun of the genre. So, we just kind of play with the tropes a little bit. And all of the characters are archetypes and... Um, so, I mean, it plays pretty well, um, but we, our, our background noise that we had in the scene that we ended up ADRing was too high. So not only was it ADRing, or what, what was it obviously ADRed, it was also like the background noise was just too high for the theater. And it sounds great in like laptops, and um, we tried it with a whole bunch of different... Uh, headphones and stuff like that but then when we got to the super nice fancy like theater with the really good sound it was like oh that's that's way too hot <laughs> it was way too much but overall i mean it re really well um we actually got approached approached afterwards about showing it uh again at this place over like in downtown phoenix called the film bar and they have an arizona showcase once a month and they want to show laser pen there next month so we're pretty excited about that because it just you know it's more audience members and we get to we get free drink tickets and shit i i won't be here but uh the guys the directors are excited about it so i guess that's yeah dude that's dope cool. yeah no so yeah so that was really exciting because because you know honestly after the showing it was like this is really cool that we get to show our film but i wish like we had the opportunity to do like a test screening of some kind but now we have that opportunity with film bar so because they want us to like give them a test version to and go watch it you know with them uh in the theater so we'll have that opportunity to really like nail the sound uh because that that is really what separates like student filmmaking from better filmmaking you know like crappy filmmaking from good filmmaking is the sound and that's you know something we're trying to work on but still, though, like just like you said, because we're normally all used to just editing 
you know, laptops, you know, stuff like that. But when you're hearing it on, like, like you said, it's a super professional, I mean, it completely changes it. So, I mean, it's not really, like, your fault, you know, you didn't, you weren't editing in some, like, you know, you know, a suite, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, no, we're, we're very, we're poor, you know what I mean? We're not, uh, we don't have the best stuff, like, we just have a MacBook, well, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, we're, we're rich off the endorsements, but, yeah, uh, we're just, we, yeah. But, I mean, that's we, all travel, yeah, that's all private island stuff, like, we're not buying equipment with that, we don't need to. <laughs> not with my pro editing skills. I know, Keith is, Keith's good, did you listen to the first episode and the third one and skip the second <laughs> uh, the second was pretty bad that was that was not editing though that was uh it, that was just bad just, recording just, yeah so yeah, I, yeah we're learning we're we're learning about audio that's no that's literally what it was it was just i mean we kind of were stumbling through the process so i think the second episode was the first time we uh recorded here though so that's probably why yeah yeah and we've kind of upped it since then for sure on how we do it and then like changing how we actually record too is a big i don't know whatever yeah it's a mistake the third one sounds good i think the fourth one i haven't listened to the fourth one yet but it should sound good too brad i'm excited um so yeah, so hey on. with i wanted to shout out three movies that i saw at the phoenix film festival i'll do it real fast uh just because they were really good and they really resonated with me uh, one is called Dave Made a Maze, um, and it's this crazy, just absurdist movie. It's about a guy who gets who who builds a cardboard box fort in his apartment, and he gets lost in it. So it's it's the weirdest thing. So like, you look at this like his girlfriend comes home, and he and he's built this fort, and his voice sounds like really echoey, and it's like. But he's inside the fort, so it's like, oh, how is it echoey like that? And then eventually, like, they go inside the fort, and it's just, like, this huge, like, world, like, chasm sort of a thing that's all built out of cardboard. Um, like the So it's, like, this huge world, um, and with all these different rooms, it's kind of like if Dungeons & Dragons was, like, built out of cardboard. You know what I mean? And they, they hired, I guess, like, there's a San Francisco cardboard school like they, they like do cardboard art i never even heard of that but i guess they it's an hired actual school what was that it's an actual school it's an actual school in uh, in san francisco that's the only place that school could exist is in san francisco uh but they hired like you know how like at the end of avengers there's like the visual effects artists and it's like this huge long list of like all these guys or and girls who did all the vfx work that's like what it was for the cardboard artist like it was like an insanely long like like a stupid long credits sequence just for the cardboard artist and it was just not so but the movie itself is it it's incredibly absurd because the whole premise is absurd but it kind of sticks with that the entire way and it's just really creative like how they used the cardboard to with all their production design is was really unique and they use it in a lot of really interesting ways and it's very surprising so if you get a chance to see it definitely go see dave made a maze because uh, it's really good man that sounds super unique that's cool <laughs> yeah, it's really creative really creative okay uh so i'll do the next two quick because that one was that was kind of the big one because it's super creative the other one is uh brave new jersey and it's about the 
Orson Welles War of the Worlds like radio broadcast. So do you guys know about that? The radio broadcast? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, so it's like uh, when he, they broadcasted it on the radio um, back in the, I think it was like the 40s or something. I'm not exactly sure. Some Sometime around there. Um, they uh, People thought it was an actual thing. So like they, he was just talking about his fictional work and um they had kind of ooh, they had kind of made it sound like it was a real broadcast um sort of a thing so it, it wasn't intentionally trying to trick people but a lot of people tuned in at the time where it was like a news broadcast so a lot of people were freaking out overnight because they thought aliens were coming down and like murdering people because you know it's like you know if you've seen war of the worlds with tom cruise people thought that shit was happening so people were like panicking people were um like oh, this is all according to legend uh so people were trying to like they're building up bunkers and fighting back and getting ready for the aliens to come and hiding and uh this story is a fictional story of this fictional town in new jersey that listens to this uh broadcast and they all decide to fight back and they think that it's actually happening and it's it's this kind of coen brothersy comedy um where it's like very character based and uh you know you can kind of tell what each person's like problem is like what they're gonna overcome at the end um but as soon as their inhibitions are gone then everything just totally changes because everyone thinks they're gonna die so that like all of their their entire world just like flips upside down and it's just a really good movie that movie ended up winning the phoenix film festival um overall but uh really really good stuff and it has the guy from arrested development um, i totally blanking on his name but it's uh the youngest bluth brother from arrested development the kind of slower one uh tony tony hale that's that's who's Tony Hale is the he's the lead and he he hasn't really been a lead in a movie that I know of so it was kind of cool to see him like carrying this thing which was neat nice yeah man that sounds cool yeah was that one called again uh Brave New Jersey oh Brave New Jersey Brave New Jersey yeah so that was cool and then okay and then so and then the last one is gonna be this animated film called Pearl um really good it's like cell shaded i think uh and it it just was a really great little short film it played in the animated shorts section uh but it it was just it was just really good and heartwarming and about family and music uh and if you ever find it i mean it's like eight minutes long it's pretty pretty easy to watch i'm not sure if it's a movie that will just crop up because, you know, normally the shorts either die or they do, like, a long festival run and then they never get released, you know? So, um, but if you ever run into it, look for an animated film called Pearl. It's definitely worth the eight minutes to watch it. Yeah, short films are interesting because, like, I feel that they need to be released, you know? Or, like, instead of playing, like, you know, 15 trailers before a movie, put, like, you know, put a short film on, too. <laughs> I know, right? I feel like that's, like... Most people's, like, ideas of what a... Or, like, the only short films people see are what they see before Pixar films. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Like, and yeah. everyone loves those, too. Like, everyone freaked out about that Piper one that came out in front of, uh... I think it was The Good Dinosaur. 
which was a really good short film. Uh, but, you know, there's so many out there. You know, most of them are bad. <laughs> Let's be honest. But most films are bad that come out. You know what I mean? Just overall. Um, but there's so many good ones. So, you know, we need, like, some outlets for short filmmakers for, you know, people to go see them. Even if there's, like, an ad in front of them, you know? Something something better yeah, than YouTube. Sure. You know? Like, something that kind of <laughs> yeah. put, brings it all together. Like, almost Vimeo. But not not Vimeo, like something focused, like that's for an audience. Because I feel like Vimeo right. is for filmmakers. It's not really, you know, for consumers. I, I don't. I, I would argue. Yeah, like I like most of my friends probably have never even checked out Vimeo. You know, at least the people that aren't really into you know films and stuff like that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, no one no one really does it. It's just it's like only YouTube <laughs> and Snapchat. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Maybe Snapchat is our future for the future short film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be the worst. I'd give up on filmmaking if that happened. <laughs> Dude, Vine, Vine was supposed to kill filmmaking. Oh, it was supposed to kill cinema. I know. I read the that article. Second movie. And let's see. What's, let, what's the current update on Vine? Uh, they business. don't exist anymore. Oh. Yeah. Who wrote that article? It said Vine was going to kill Hollywood. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> I don't know, but they probably went on to write a bunch of other BuzzFeed and articles and shit. So probably. I'm sure that person's around still. People like hearing that Hollywood is dying, but Hollywood is doing the opposite. Hollywood makes more money every year, I'm pretty sure, like on on average. I mean, they're making less movies, but they're they're making more dollars. And, you know, thanks to 3D, IMAX... 3D Real, 3D Disney, 3D Max, I217, I don't, <laughs> whatever, just take $50 and I'll watch your stupid Star Wars movie. Man, that's like blasphemy right there almost. <laughs> Might be sacrilegious to some listeners. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, bring on the mean emails. Send them, send them to back to and back. And address them to Jacob. At, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? Back to back films. It's at BTB G- Films. Yeah. BTB Films Podcast at gmail.com. And address them to Keith. Specifically. Address them to Jacob Keith, and say you hate him. Go, go down. Say what you need to say. <laughs> Jacob's a sacrilegious. He's the, he's the Darth. We got Darth Jacob over here. Darth, Darth Jacob. Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> No, but uh, to your point about showing stuff in front of movies, like, I can't imagine that really takes away ad revenue from them. So, like, like, you know, like, wherever your theater is located, you should be showing at least one or two. You know, you could show a couple of different ones and have them rotate around movies and stuff. Like, how hard would that be? You know? Especially if it was, like, a limit. If it was, like, a 10-minute long. You could, it can't be any more than 10 or 5 minutes or something even. And, like, you know, like... I, why couldn't a regal theater do that for local people? You know? I, I have a, I have a reason. It's because they don't give two shits about the well, films. All they care true. about is the money. You know. But they could probably monetize it, though. You'd think. How would they you monetize know what I mean? it? Because like if because like there was that there was that short and it was done by this lady and it was like a homage to like the 1930s like Steamboat Willie. Um, you know, kind of bef- you know pre Mickey Mouse, and it had like all the traditional characters of that era, and they he, it looked like it was made, you know, in the 30s, but it was new, and then 
like halfway through the short, it like turns into color and then it turns into like 3D. Oh, I and know. Stuff. What you're, it was yeah. like really, really cool. It was like really cool. I've seen and, like, that. It, I think it might have even been nominated for like the short Oscar. Yes. It might have won. I don't even remember. Yes, it was. But, like, yep. I saw it at the Telluride Film Festival. They played it before a film and like people like stood up and clapped after it like that's a trip like it like they like they just enjoyed it and they played it in like t- i saw it twice they played it in front of gravity and then they played it in front of some other film i think um might have been like nebraska or something uh which was kind of you know <laughs> two completely different types yeah. of films but um but yeah like i don't know it, like i feel there's an audience there and like i think you know walt disney owned that short so it's disney i mean granted they don't really need any more money but if they really wanted to, they could have slapped that thing on on like a Blu-ray of any one of their animated films, or they could have slapped it on in front of you know Moana or whatever you know the film at the time, Tangled or um, Frozen or whatever the what the Pixar film that came out that year. I think it was 2014, I think. But um, and they could have like they totally could have been like, okay, Regal, we're gonna you know we're gonna put this in front of your you know uh, digital version of the full-length you know film and then you know they can they can, i'm sure they can monetize that you know instead of just trailers uh, yeah i, I feel like but people look forward to the pixar short film that kind of comes prior and if they're they right. don't they're pleasantly surprised that it's there you know what i mean it's like a little pre-story for you yeah and like if they did it with in movies that aren't just pixar like i feel that i think people would start to welcome it because like I don't get me wrong. I love trailers. I love going to, to the movie theater to see like the trailers, right? Most of the time, I've seen the trailers already, because, you know, on the internet or whatever. But it is still fun to see it like with a crowd, right. you know, especially if it's a really cool trailer. But I'm like sitting there and I'm like, I'm enjoying some of the trailers. But then you hear people like, oh, another one, you know, right. and they're like groaning like, oh my god, another one. Or if like you go to a horror f- film, then of course all the trailers are predominantly horror films. And some people they don't maybe go to a lot of horror films, so they are like bored with like all these horror film yeah. trailers. <laughs> they just like want to get to the next one. But if they had like a, a horror short or something, I feel the audience would probably dig it more, you know. Like, even if it's six minutes long, I mean, it's going to end. I mean, they're there for a movie, so right. they'll sit They'll sit through it, you know? <laughs> honestly, honestly, that could be something that... Because, like, I know that, you know, movie theaters and, and movie studios, they're, they're trying to differentiate... They're always trying to differentiate themselves from TV. And, like, you know, that's why, like, CinemaScope came out. We talked about that earlier uh, on an earlier podcast. But... You know, maybe this, I mean, that could be a way for them to to get people back to the theaters, you know, for not, I mean, obviously people are going to go see, you know, Star Wars no matter what, you know, and the new Marvel, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, they're going to go see that. But if we can get some, like, short films, maybe, maybe, audience, I mean, it's just a theory, but maybe more audiences would, would show up and, and keep showing up because they want to see these little short form things. I don't know. Jacob, I think I think what you're kind of hinting at is that you want to see Star Wars short films. You know, all I want to see, <laughs> all, the only good character in Star Wars is Boba Fett. That's it. <laughs> and he's only been on screen like for 10 minutes and then he dies. But, but wouldn't that be cool, though? Like you go see like some film, right? Yeah. And before it starts, you see like a 10 minute short 
of like it could it could be like a Star Wars short, or it could be or a space a, sci-fi short or, or just, something yeah, just similar to it. Yeah. yeah, anything. I mean, I think that could be well, really cool. It couldn't be anything. I mean, you don't want to be going showing like some crazy horror short in front of a kids' movie, right? So, like, what the yeah. reason? That would be, yeah, like so, show a, a sausage party short in front of a Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it'd have to be like a, if it's like a short that would be rated R. I guess it'd play in front of an R-rated film. Yeah, you know, yeah, just like PG you know, like the for... Red Band trailers will only play. Right, yeah. right. But uh, for the record, I, I am not obsessed with Bubba Fett. That was a joke. So, uh, you know, I do like Star Wars. I don't love Star Wars like a lot of people, but I do I do go see all of them in theaters like, you know, the first week cuz it's fun. It's a fun movie. Everyone's into it and it's really cool. Is that a Star Trek poster behind you? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no. No, fucker. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's well... <laughs> Uh, so our topic this week is pretty long, and what I have written down is fairly long-winded. So I think we should just jump right into it here. Yeah, don't get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm trying to like think of everything I'm going to have to say and all the ideas, because a tour theory is like even more so than the aspect ratio stuff was almost like... I mean, you could go down the rabbit hole pretty deep in both, but I'm surprised at how far this one really goes and, like, how much history is wrapped up in these topics, like, between this one and aspect ratios. Um, but, yeah, so the main topic this week is auteur theory. Uh, it's a heavily debated topic in the film world. There are many critics and film theorists who believe that it isn't a credible idea and vice versa. Um, so, basically... The word auteur is derived from the French word meaning author. Uh, it's a theory in filmmaking that, quote, studies film as a medium of personal expression in which great directors leave a recognizable stylistic signature on their work. So, in other words, it's a theory of filmmaking in which the director is viewed as the major creative force in a motion picture. Uh, typically, the director of a film is considered the auteur of a film because he or she is the individual that oversees all the visual and audio aspects of a movie, uh, like any of the creative aspects generally. Whereas, say, the writer uh, who wrote the screenplay generally doesn't have a say in production decisions. Now that, I mean, there are some writers who are involved and there are some writers who are directors and there are some writers on TV shows that are actually involved in production. But generally speaking, the writer of the screenplay gets paid to write the screenplay and then that's it. Um, then they move on to their next whatever writing endeavor. Um, and then I just kind of add in here kind of my personal opinion on that too. The director's involvement from the very beginning to the very end of the filmmaking process and their position as kind of like generally they take they're they're kind of the cause or or the cause of the success or the failure of a movie generally like you know if there's a really positive opinion it's tend that people tend to give that like credit to the director and if it's a bad movie then the director kind of takes all the flack um so that's kind of another reason why i personally think that the director is considered an author more than any other like person like a producer even because a producer is kind of like behind this curtain you know they're not really seen as much uh let's see 
Uh, so, auteur theory was developed in the 1950s in France. Um, excuse me. When critics of... Oh, God, I just had this pronounced earlier. Uh, okay, how the hell was it pronounced? Caillé? Oh, I think it's Caillé, yeah. Caillé du Cinema, a French magazine co-founded by André Basson. Um, and... See, I just lost where I was at. You're doing good, uh, Keith. Yeah. You're doing good. <laughs> so, so it was developed in the 50s um, when these critics at Caillé du Cinema started writing these director-centered film criticisms. So everything kind of prior to that um, was focused more around like the movie or the studio as opposed to talking about the director as someone who actually has any sort of creative say in things uh they suggested that even hollywood had a handful of auteurs who produced the great films and then and critic andrew saris of film culture and village voice actually was the one who helped bring the idea of auteur theory to auteur theory to america and american film studies um at the time, this was a controversial opinion to hold, the opinion that auteur theory existed, uh, because before the 50s, like I said, directors were considered hired functionaries who were responsible for fast and cheap productions and basically just were hired guns. Like, they had to answer to everyone, mostly the producers of the studios, uh, because the producers were considered the real kind of leaders of filmmaking. Um, however, these critics began to see artistic styles and patterns in the works of people such as John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock. I think Hitchcock is kind of really one of the big names thrown around in auteur theory. Um, and even Kurosawa, who we're going to be talking about. Um, so, like, yeah, they just started to basically look at Hitchcock's films kind of, you know, back to back or beside each other and just begin to notice and you, you really can see it in a Hitchcock movie there's kind of a certain look to it certain type of character involved this certain story I mean he kind of plays in a general the same genre for the most part uh, so you, there is a pattern there that people started to recognize um, so yeah they started to see the patterns in the works of these big directors and then it, you can kind of almost see it now too how prevalent that thought has become because nowadays you know unless it's really like a star wars or like marvel or something i mean with the exception of i think joss whedon typically you see it's so-and-so's movie you know so it'll mm -hmm. be akira kurosawa's yojimbo you know and even to a certain degree it's kind of joss whedon's marvel the or more joss whedon's the avengers or, you know or james gunn with guardians as I was just going to say, yeah, James Gunn with Guardians. Um, you, yeah, so typically, I mean, Tarantino's something, you know, like the director's name is used in modern times as a way to sell things more than almost any anything else. I mean, no more, even more than stars nowadays, you know. If, yeah. if, Tarantino, if Tarantino puts out a movie, you care about it because it's Tarantino. You don't care about it necessarily because of who's in it, right? Yeah, and you can see it in, like, trailers and stuff. Like, you, you have the, like, for Hateful Eight, the eighth film of Tarantino. It, like, says it right there, you know. Yep. And then you also exactly. see, like, from the filmmakers who brought you blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So, like, every, exactly. everyone has seen that, but... The difference is, like, when they're using their name, you know? Like, you see Christopher Nolan's name on the new Dunkirk movie trailer. You know what I mean? Like, it says, exactly. from Chris Nolan. And then it lists his stuff. Like, they're trying to 
auteurize him in a sort of a way to, to sell the product. 100%. And like me personally, I can't tell you who's starring in Dunkirk, but I know it's made by Nolan. You know, I couldn't tell you who produced it. I, I mean, I think Hoyt Van Hoytema is his kind of go-to DP, so I know that. But, like, you know, generally speaking, you don't necessarily know who does all the behind-the-scenes stuff. You just know, hell, it's Christopher Nolan. Awesome. I want to see that. His movies are great, you know? So, like, you you have a certain expectation built up of his authorship of his movies, basically. Um, so, let's see. So, that's kind of... People who are pro to O two theory kind of kind of basically say like, look, there's patterns in the director's movies. The directors tend to have, like, when you see that director's movie, you know, you know that it is his movie, right? Um, uh, except for critics of O two theory, posit that film is a collaborative art form, so it's actually not really possible to assign specific responsibility for how a film turns out to any one individual like the director even when the filmmaker is one with like a recognizable style so again with like tarantino you know it's art can be argued that he's when you watch a tarantino movie you kind of know you're watching it because of the certain stylistic choices that he makes but there's so many other people like you know we talked about this actually i think in the first episode when we talk about how like the editor's like Scorsese has his editor, Tarantino had his editor, you know, Lucas had editors that were affected and altered the way the film turned out or that knew, you know, like they knew enough about, for example, uh, was it Sally Menk? I think was his Tarantino's director or editor for a while. So like she knew like his style and like kind of what he was going for. And I've heard that like with Shoemaker, uh, Thelma Shoemaker, who's Scorsese's editor, like, you know, she basically just assembles it how he already shot it because it's so planned out and so thought thought about, right? Um, but there's like people just behind the scenes. You know, you're the costume designer. I mean, we talk about uh, Jack Fisk with production design and how like he's got a recognizable like when you see his productions, how like thorough they are. And you know, Nolan probably he Nolan helps inform what he wants but it's ultimately up to the production designer to say this is what we're actually putting here you know what i mean in terms of like a set piece or like in terms of all the props that are around or stuff like that you know what i mean so like you know that wasn't nolan's doing right or like you know specific really specific camera choices about you know the director will help inform like lens and framing and depending on how serious they are about their own camera like you know Kubrick was basically his own cinematographer um so like the director will help inform those decisions but ultimately it's up to the cinematographer to say this is exactly how we're going to light it this is the exact lights we need this is the look we're trying to get and this and then what's actually painted on the screen is due to the cinematographer and the and the and the gaff crew and the grip crew and everything like that yeah i think Um, adding adding on to that i think also a lot of directors that critics call a tours they use a rotating like i I don't want to say staff of writers but they come back to the same writers over and over um i think kurosawa had like five different writers that he just kind of had in rotation that he would use for his films um which which is well, interesting. Then you, well, you look at like Wes Anderson, you know, and like generally the same cinematographer. 
uh, same composers. You know, Nolan was using Fister for a while before they kind of split apart. Mm-hmm. And, and Hans they, Zimmer. They, Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, my bad. And then uh, uh, Robert Richardson and Tarantino, you know, are kind of a pair. So, like, it's it's this that's kind of an interesting point actually because of like it's almost like group tourism where like this group gets together and like that's you know what you're gonna get when that group gets together type of thing um so yeah so let's see here others criticize O'Tour theory uh, arguing that critics who actively look for similarities between a director's films are more likely to see those patterns emerge mm-hmm. uh, that may not actually have been there or have been intended by the director so yeah, essentially what they're saying is that if you're looking for it, you'll find it, right? I, I love that argument because you can't, you can't fight really against that argument. You know what I mean? Because it's basically like you're so obsessed with movies that you're seeing patterns. Like, what do you say to that? Like, how do you counter that argument? I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just curious. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, no shit. I'm seeing patterns. Like, duh. Like, all movies rely on patterns. Like, I mean, look at the patterns of plots. You know, there's only like six plots total that you can do well it's funny to me because like like anybody has their own like signature right or like you if you write down on a piece of paper it's going to look like your handwriting Mm -hmm. if i write down on a piece of paper it's going to look like my handwriting it's like any art i think when the filmmaker starts working on his film he's going to do what he does and he's going to make the film the way he knows how to make his film Mm -hmm. so of course there's going to be patterns there you know yeah um yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. <laughs> and and it's kind of one of those things, too. Like, that argument is, like, it's got its levels, too, right? Like, you know, in a Tarantino movie, you're likely going to see a shot of feet because that's just one of his things, and that's just a pattern in each it's of his movies. So little foot fetish. Exactly. <laughs> does he actually have a foot fetish? Probably. He probably I does, think he does. Yeah. 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 Or he just really loves that shot because it's not—it's yeah. it's not dudes' feet; it's only women's. It's, yeah, well, yeah. dudes' oh, feet are gross, point, though. though. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> just in general, usually they're pretty gross. <laughs> yeah, is it? It really is only women's. Yeah, it's only women's. Yeah. So it must be what's her. Uh, I'm trying to think of *Inglorious Bastards*. I don't know if I actually remember Inglourious a shot. *Inglorious Bastards*. It's uh, Diane Kruger's feet when Christoph Waltz is making oh, her try on yeah. and he puts right. her foot on his leg. I bet Tarantino was like, right. "Yeah, get it on his leg." Because <laughs> 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 the other ones, they're like Uma Thurman. I don't think she puts it on anything. But then in uh, what was the grind? The Grindhouse film, *Death Proof*. Death Proof. Her leg yeah, yeah. is like on the dashboard. dashboard. Right. And spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers thing just flies off man when they get the correction yeah. <laughs> enjoyed that too yeah it's like i get to take this prop home that's just a leg and yeah, a foot yeah, yeah this one's for me that's what that's what he was saying during the whole film yeah. this one's for me oh man but yeah so like you know there are patterns in movies that do exist there and not just because i was searching for a pattern so it's like this question of like well how far down the hole can we go before it's too far yeah, because you know. it's, like, it's like Orson Welles. Like, you'll watch any Orson Welles film, and it's obviously done by Orson Welles, you know? Mm-hmm. Same with, like, what you're talking about, Scoot, uh, Kubrick or Wes Anderson. And I honestly think, I mean, yeah, a lot of those choices that they're making, it's 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 they're completely 
they know that they're choosing to shoot the film that particular way. Yeah. But some of it, I know, is just completely subconscious because that's the only way they know how to do it. And Or that's what they like. Or, and that's mm-hmm. what they like, yeah. So, like, I can see how some people were like, oh, that's just, you know, he's just doing it because that's how he knows how to do it. It has nothing to do with how he's the author, you know. But you, I mean, you can go both ways on it, I think, really. I don't know. That's, I mean, I'm completely pro, like, a tour theory like I really think it's a director's medium like personally but I can see the how some people can you know be you know aren't super into the whole keep, director as author <laughs> are you pro are you pro am I pro tour theory um I don't know I've done a lot of like research into both ways I, I mean both arguments <sighs> I don't know. They're not really all that strong for or against, but like when you look at it, like from our level where we're not working with full crews, right? Where a lot of it is like us and then we have a small crew and then we wear multiple hats, right? So we'll direct, produce. A lot of times we wrote it, edited it. You know, we might have a sound person, but ultimately we kind of like configure all the dialogue and kind of, you know, we might have a composer, but sometimes we'll find just music around too. Like a lot of it in terms of this level of filmmaking is we are the authors, right? If you really break it down, like who else on our crew, if not for us, is the author of the movie, you know? Right. Right. And, And like we can play all three of our films and we would know who did what film. Exactly. You know what and I mean? Then, like, yeah. Jacob's film would totally be different than mine, and mine would be completely different than Keith's. Even know? if it was the same exact script. Right, right. You know? Like, oh, totally. You, you, that, um, that's funny, because th- that movie, I think it's called Four Rooms. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, with the... Uh, with the four directors, Tarantino and it's like the Rodriguez same and, script or whatever? Is it? Um, is that what it is? Four Rooms isn't... It's... Just, it's, it's it's the Tarantino, Rodriguez, Salison Anders, and Rockwell, right? Uh-huh. But each 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 room is different, and it's each room is directed. It's a different story, and it's directed by a different director. Oh, I see. And it's it's a one overarching. It's like a, it's one long. It's one film. Like I don't know. It's like ninety minutes long. But each room is directed by a different director. It's got but, its like separate vignettes. Yeah, to but make they're up not the story. different scripts. Oh, oh, they're not yeah. different. They are different scripts. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay, I was thinking they were the same. And I was like, ooh, but that sounds kind of neat. There is kind of a film. Well, there's a film called, oh, I forget the name of it. The Fifth Dimension or something like that? No, I forget. But it's about um, Lars von Trier forces the, this director to make. The Five Obstructions? Five Obstructions, that's it. Uh, his the same his same film like over and over again, but using different um, obstructions. Obstructions, which is really interesting, you know. What is yeah. uh, like, what, it, what what is an obstruction in this case? Um, I've never actually seen it. But it's I know it's a really interesting film. Like, um, I can't remember exactly the exact obstructions that Vonchier like I mean, chooses. Like, what what does that mean? So, like, like he'd be like, okay, you have to do, you have to remake the same film, but you can't use like any sound, or you oh, can't okay. use, you can't use, um. It's like forcing a limitation, basically. Yeah, got it. Got it. Okay, yeah, that's kind of cool. That's a cool idea. 
yeah so then the, you know the, it shows the director just like oh my god how am I gonna do this you know um, and then you know Von Trier is just like laughing yeah. maniacally he's you got know, his behind, fingers you know, like, like all tapping yeah. <laughs> like each other like yeah those type of films are interesting to see just to see the process of how directors or filmmakers like how they would go around doing it if they were by themselves and then how they would go around if when they have to collaborate with someone that they maybe not don't want to or they have like obstructions i don't know it's cool that's cool yeah i i mean i come on the argument or go ahead you go ahead keith i mean i'm just gonna continue to answer your question so yep um well basically i guess what i'm saying is that like if if you break down film and remove a lot of the the bigger crews then it kind of becomes a little more obvious that yeah you're you really are an author of what you're doing and then but it's like at what point when your crew becomes a certain side like at what point do you not become the author you know there's no like there's no oh i'm working with 50 people now so therefore it's i'm not the author of this movie you know what i mean and like so is there is there even a point where it does become so like i mean your work kind of fades into the background of the collaborative nature of the movie i mean you know i don't know it's hard to tell yeah that's i think it that's, oh, go ahead, that's sorry that's one of the criticisms of it actually is like under like the hollywood studio system some people have said that auteur theory just kind of falls apart like it it uh doesn't apply just because of the nature of how directors are hired how um really it's a power dynamic between like you know if you have brad pitt in your movie he gets a lot of creative say in what kind of goes down and what what gets shown you know there's that uh movie with hulk hogan in it that because hulk hogan had for some reason had a lot of power he was able to say like i'm riding on this motorcycle with a really pretty girl and that just is in one of the shots and it makes no sense, but that's what he wanted to do. Um, so you, you know, you have other people who are just weighing in on the options and you have a studio who's has their own idea of what the movie is and you have producers. So in the studio system, uh, a lot of people argue that it just isn't, that's, it just, it just falls apart and it's, it's, an entirely collaborative thing that is a combination of a whole bunch of people working on it. Especially with this idea of like the the throwaway directors that we have nowadays too, where they're bringing someone you know, and just kind of a semi no name who can be thrown out. You know, like in that sense, of course the director is an auteur. You know, and then the, the question kind of becomes: Well, are is the studio executives who make the decisions on all the Marvel movies and how that whole cinematic universe is going to look? Are those the auteurs then? You know what I mean? Like, where does it stop and where does it begin? Yeah, like would you also, say Kevin Feige is the auteur of Marvel since he's like in charge of he's like the showrunner of their whole thing? You know, I mean. You'd, yeah, that's that's the question, yeah, right? Like, like, I don't think, I just don't know if that's. It's interesting because I think it all kind of boils down to money again. Because like, yeah, <laughs> Christopher Nolan with the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Like, he had that's a huge that was a huge like um, trilogy for the studios to make. Yet he's considered kind of you know you know an auteur film director, and then same with Michael Bay. I mean, 
when you watch a Michael Bay movie, you know you're watching a Michael Bay movie, yet those are like the biggest studio movies that you can think of, really, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but then there's... But the reason why the one could say that they're authors of their own films is that they have a history of... Their, their filmography has proven to make good money, so the studios or the producers are like, okay, yeah, you green light that project, you know, his films, he hasn't, you know... He's only had, you know, one or two stinkers, you know, uh, so we're going to green light it, give him, you know, $160 million, and he's going to do that film. Um, whereas there's other directors, that, right, that maybe don't have as good of a filmography um, box office-wise, so they're going to be stuck having to follow the orders of the producers. So then their authorship or whatever um, – you know isn't as obvious because they don't have the full um backing of the studio so i because because they don't want to lose money so i think money has a little bit at least in the studio system to do with uh you know how films are you know authored i guess (laughs) and then i'd even say that like auteur theory really begins to break down once you start getting into like tv and stuff too because there's like style guide bibles and style bibles that like as a director you can have a certain level of creative freedom but at the same time it's like you if you're not going by the bible it's not happening well that's the, that's the thing about tv is is the bible is made by one or two people like that's made by the showrunner so in tv i you know like you have Lena Dunham's, uh, girls show which feels so like lena dunham but judd apatow is executive producer and kind of brought her on because he Judd Apatow likes that kind of style of comedy um but you know why you know if Tim Burton is the auteur of Edward Scissorhands then why couldn't Lena Dunham be the auteur of Girls you know what I mean like because it yeah because it is like her show she stars in it she she does it all it's hard I mean that's exactly that's it where's the line who who does take that and like and then the question that no one answers is like well can you have multiple people be auteurs for one thing for one product you know like is that possible too I, so like, I, I think people would call the coen brothers auteurs i think people yeah. would say that just because they they're a pair yeah they're a pair they have that style i think they oh totally yeah would say I mean, that because not not only can you see their film their, the similarities of all their films when they don't work with the same crew you know because like they they work with Roger Deakins quite a bit but there's a lot of films that they've done that that Roger Deakins isn't the cinematographer for but yet they, you can still totally tell that it's a Coen Brothers film mm-hmm. you know um, and they you know they don't work with the same producers every single time and they don't work with the same actors all the time but I mean they do have a family just like Tarantino they have like that group of people which I think a lot of authors have, you know, that they it's their go-to people, you know. Mm-hmm. Same costume designer, you know, Brian De Palma and Pino Dinaggio with their with the composer and or Giorgio Moroder, you know, like um, Alfred Hitchcock and his composer, you know, Bernard Herrmann. It's like all these pairings that are so recognizable to the Hitchcock name or the Otto Preminger name or whatever it is, but yet even when they're not working with the same people, you can still tell that it's the same movie. And I think or the same film directors. I think that's what really maybe shows a true auteur in a way. 
but then again, there's going to be. I mean, I just you know, I don't know. It's, well, it's, it's opening a whole can of worms, I think. Totally. <laughs> and, and like with what you're saying with Hitchcock, I mean, the big criticism with him and him being an auteur is that like he had a lot of people write his scripts for him, and then he'd maybe go in and change stuff, but. You know the the initial scripting was not him, and there's a ton of people who worked like his editors and stuff like that who helped shape. And uh, there's a lot of people. He he has he's a good decision maker. Don't get me wrong, but there were a lot of people who were telling him not do this and don't do that and and et cetera et cetera. So it's like you know it kind of again starts to fall apart a little bit because it's like well if he's being influenced by someone else and then changes his mind because of that is he now not did he lose his authorship or a degree of his authorship and then like what degrees of authorship do we really have you know what i mean like it's a it's really hard and then like in terms of like what i feel about the criticisms for auteur theory like yeah of course like it's collaborative as hell and like i i know that i uh, one of the horror shorts that i did I had an idea for what I wanted the kid who was kind of the monster to look like, but it was uh, my costume designer who worked with me at the time. She was the one who, like, filled out the physical costume and, like, really helped to push exactly what it looked like. So, like, I, I had the idea, but I didn't do that. So did my authorship end with that? I mean... Yes. I, I guess. <laughs> and to, you know, like... <laughs> To really throw a wrench in, too, you know, you have directors like Soderbergh, right, who primarily does, you know, does the directing, does the editing, does the cinematography, and he even puts fake names in the credits so it doesn't look like it's Soderbergh, 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 Soderbergh. He, like, he uses fake names. Oh, that's, Um, I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, like, you know, he does so much of his own stuff, but yet you can watch The Girlfriend Experience, and then you can watch you know out of sight and they're like they look almost like they're done by completely different filmmakers yeah. but yet they're totally Soderbergh films yeah um, Magic Mike and of course Ocean's Eleven yeah. you know and you can find patterns of course because if you really dive in there yeah there's going to be patterns because you're talking about 90 to you know 146 minute films where of course there's going to be patterns at the same time on maybe surface level or thematic level or, or even on a visual level there's going to be more differences and similarities depending and and there's only a few film directors that I can think of off the top of my head that are like that and Soderbergh is one but yet he is considered not to I think as well um, or at least he has films that are like this group of films all look alike and then and then his 90s film looks like you know films look like this you know uh I kind of, in in that sense, the way you're describing it, it almost makes it like, I mean, the definition of auteur should almost be shifted to, does the director's name sell the movie? Like, because there's a lot of movies that get released where it's like, like, for example, The Void. Void looks awesome. I have no clue who directed that movie. You know what I mean? Like, the, his name is not something that's selling the movie. So, like, even if that was his eighth movie it's still not being used to sell the movie. So like mm-hmm. in that sense, maybe he's not no tour or like airplane. You know, I think that was a uh, Zucker Zucker's right. So like, but like at the same time, like that name, maybe it's a bad example because it's a little more known, but it's like, you're not watching it for him necessarily. You're watching it for it's airplane. You know, it's a classic or whatever. You know what I mean? Or like, 
that type of thing. So, like, you know, when you go to see this, this is Michael Bay's Transformers, Michael Bay's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, this is Tarantino's whatever, mm-hmm. this is Nolan's Dunkirk, Nolan's Inception. Yeah, Tim Burton's like, whatever. Tim Burton's whatever, yeah. exactly. Like, so in that sense, maybe that's the better definition of what an auteur is because it's someone who makes movies that you know is going to, like... I mean, their name is being used to sell the movie, so you're getting some sort of expectation from what how the movie will be and you like that expectation like maybe it's like you know the director that hits that that perfect wave right that that just hits an audience of a certain era a certain way that changes the the way the game is played or the way mm-hmm. you know like tarantino right i mean he changed film you know for the 90s and and so now because of that you know culturally he's a huge name not only in Film. I mean, you know, you have Logic rapping. You know, he had a whole mixtape called Bobby Tarantino because he loved the Kill Bill series and he, <laughs> and he loved Reza, so mm-hmm. he started doing rap. You know, um, you have all he Tarantino's branch. You know, his 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 name has is, is a cultural item, and same with Wes Anderson. You know, there's people that are copying his style for perfume ads, and mm-hmm. um, um, and so these are all people that are auteurs. Um, and I think uh, primarily a lot of it is because they hit a certain time or they hurt, they just hit something where people won't forget, you know, or don't forget, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brian De Palma with Scarface or um, David Lynch with Eraserhead, and then they just took their art and then just kept going with it, and it just just by either by luck or by the way the studios presented it or by however means um, their names have stuck. Um, because of a cultural wave, yeah, and I th- yeah. So that's that's also a whole other that's a whole other thing thing too. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like M Night Shyamalan was like you know Hollywood's like you know baby for a little while, <laughs> and then and then he just you know his name people were laughing at it, you know, and then now he's kind of having a little bit of a resurgence. He's coming back. So it, yeah, but yet everybody knows the name M Night Shyamalan, whether you've seen his films or not. People are familiar know, with know that name. name. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why they tried to use him to sell Avatar. Yeah. Airbender <laughs> movie, you know? Yeah. Because, oh like, God, they Avatar. thought they could use his the name worst. for that. Uh, but that that also makes me think, too, like, when you look at auteur, like, there's different types, right? So, like, Shyamalan, his auteur, his authorship was in the twist. He became known right. for that, right? right? So every time you watch his movies, you know you're watching his movies, and you know there's going to be some form of twist coming. Wes Anderson is a visual auteur, right? So, like, in Moonrise Kingdom, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and then Grand Budapest, which we already talked about, like, that style of the flat shot, the storybook style, Fantastic Mr. Fox is mm-hmm. the same way. Miniatures. That, right. Yep. Exactly. That's, soundtrack. That's, right. That's a, that's a visual thing. Like, when you, know you're, when you look at Wes Anderson's movie, you know you're watching his movie because of the distinct visual style. And, like... You know, he's got certain characters, types, archetypes that he likes and stuff like that. But generally speaking, you know his movies because of the visual style. And then you look at, like, David Lynch. Okay, like, his movies all look pretty different, right? Because they try and fit into, like, a different genre. Um, even the, I mean, it's mostly noir. But, but, like, you know, when you look at Lost Highway versus... Inland Empire versus Mulholland Drive versus Eraserhead. They're all very different looking, but they're still Lynchian. 
there's still something about it that's auteur, right? That he knows his themes and, and, and his right. tracks and, and like stuff. his and the way he kind of cut, like wants to cut and how he plays scenes out and this, right. you know, it, that's what I'm saying. Is like there's so like now we're talking about different degrees of an auteur yeah. and like what. So what specifically do you have to be visual or do you not have to be visual? Like, do you have to have a combination of it to like, right. to make, you know what I mean? Like it's com it's a complex theory that I don't, that makes sense when you talk about it broadly, but it, it needs like, it's a separate definition almost. What do you guys think of Tim Burton's the nightmare before Christmas? What, like, well, see, he didn't. He didn't direct. He, didn't direct it, it. he was only producer. I yeah. know. And, well, he was the producer. Not only was he producer, which which is a big deal. That's that's like the head of the movie is the producer. Um, but the he wrote a poem about the, the Nightmare Before Christmas, and then had another writer create the story based off of the poem, and then had another writer write the screenplay off of that story. So it's almost like a, like a poem adap like what you see like a book adaptation, but it's like a poem adaptation. And then he wasn't there on set for for any of the filming at all. Yet his name is on the front of the movie, and people credit him as the auteur of the film. When really like and the, it's got his look too. I would, it you know has I mean? his like, look, but then you you know yeah. I think Henry Selick was the director. And then he came out with movies like Coraline and, uh, uh, God, what? I can't remember what, <laughs> I can't remember I'm the not other sure. ones. Um, but he, he came out with these movies that have that same look. So it's like, uh, you know, and people still kind of look at Coraline and say, that is a Tim Burton movie, but Tim Burton had nothing to do with it. Like he wasn't part of the entire process. So it seems like what you guys are saying about the theme is like people look at these like trends that are happening with movies or, or, or distinct styles and say that belongs to this person. Um, even, even if it doesn't, you know, like, so, you know, maybe Tim Burton, you know, he has this style, but he, when other people do something vaguely similar to what he does, then it, people credit it to him like that. That doesn't, Makes sense. I'm not. Like, I totally get the confusion, and I'm not trying to blame anybody for getting it wrong. Um, it, it, you know, unless you're Byron, in which case, you know, if you got it wrong, then you can just <laughs> we'll mute your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you're great. Um, but uh, yeah, I just don't. I just don't get the. I just don't well, get it. Because you have like Quentin Tarantino who wrote True Ro True Romance. Um, and theme-wise, it's very Tarantino. Like, it's super Tarantino. But it's directed by Tony Scott. And when I watch that movie, I'm not thinking of Quentin Tarantino when I'm watching the movie. And I'm not thinking Tony Scott either. It's kind of... I, it's just kind of just its own, like, little film. And I don't know if what, if you guys have seen that movie, but it, have, like, oh, yeah. do you guys think of Tarantino when you're watching it? Or do you think of Tony Scott? Like, I'm thinking back, it's pretty Tarantino-esque. Like, yeah, I think yeah. It, he must have worked I mean I feel like Tarantino was more involved in that than just writing you know what I mean I think he probably helped influence some decisions because it, it is it is a Bonnie and Clyde type of thing but it's still like a Tarantino mm -hmm. thing yeah because you, you got know? those crazy characters you have the 
the build up to the violence and then quick violence and, and the yeah. dialogue is fantastic and that scene between Christopher Walken and you know Dennis mm-hmm. Hopper and that in the in the trailer you know is a classic story of, you know Quentin Tarantino story very similar to the the clock or the watch story of Christopher Walken's mm-hmm. in Pulp Fiction and mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. um, the way it's delivered and and the way it's you know even structured in the film but like. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting because, like, theme-wise, yeah, it's so Tarantino, but it's not even... I don't even think it was um, really previewed or... or uh, it wasn't even sold as a Tarantino movie, you know? It was... Because Tarantino was a name, but it wasn't, like, he, he hadn't quite hit the crest of that wave that we were talking mm-hmm, about yeah. um, at, that, at, at that time. Um, he was, you know, getting there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, another movie where it's it, it kind of does that is The Squid and the Whale, which actually our boy uh, Wes Anderson, uh, who we're going to be talking about today, he produced it. Um, and the director slash writer of that movie had collaborated with Wes Anderson as a writer uh, prior to the movie. And you can kind of see how it's Wes Anderson-y in a way because it has like... Like ch- children doing adult things, which is kind of something that Wes Anderson does. Like like children, you guys know what I'm talking about, where they do like more oh, adult. Totally. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. children who are adult and adults who are children. Yes, yeah, it, no, it's exactly it's exactly that. But the movie is very different, and it's it's not shot in that with that flat thing, you know, flat image. There's no miniatures, you know. It, That's it, a Noah. Baumbach or Baum, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. right? Baumbach or Baumbach. something. Yeah, Baumbach. Right, that's the director of it. Yeah, yeah. Because he, I think he is. You know, he's like a Sundance darling. I'm pretty sure. Like, uh, he, you know, people. It's like Alexander Payne. You know, people know his films, and, and there's a particular group of people that really, really dig his mm-hmm. his his films. Um, yeah, he crosses that line of like. He's worked with people that are really well known as well, but he has his own thing too. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, like yeah. that's like a whole other. I don't know. <laughs> no, they, yeah, it just it's so complex, and you know, I I haven't said this yet, but that's why I fall on the anti auteur theory because there's just so much that goes on in movies that who the fuck cares? You know, like you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I just I don't. Like, I get, like, that directors bring their influence on a movie or writers will bring their influence on a movie. You know, like Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones, they work together on a ton of stuff. And then Charlie Kaufman went on and directed. And it's like, oh, all that stuff that I thought was Spike Jones was actually Charlie Kaufman. You know what I mean? So it's just like, that's just what a director does. Like, they just bring their style. And, like, you know, in the pseudo system, it gets a little more complex but for independent movies like they just have their distinct look and I, I just I just don't like the idea of giving the full credit of a movie to a singular person ever like even what? even for us when we're directing like we're direct we're like herding cats for our little indie projects you know what I mean because that's you know if you don't pay anybody kicking dogs yeah it's it's the way it's so hard (laughs) just to get people to do something um but still like they they get hired for a reason or not hired they you ask that actor to do it for a reason and sometimes mistakes are made and 
uh, sometimes those mistakes are good, you know, and you end up using those and you're just like, oh, that's pretty sweet. But then you have a bunch of film theorists who analyze it and say, oh, wow, that's, this is like so cool or so bad for these reasons. This, you know, I just, I don't know. I think it's, I just think it's dumb. Well, to kind of, I actually had a question about this a little bit earlier that what you're saying helps inform. It's like, so how much, like, at what point is stuff that's out of your control? Like, there's a lot of things that are out of your control, right? So does that still make you an auteur, even though it's something that was out of your control? Like, for example, a mistake that happened, like, just because it happened and maybe it's happened a couple times where that's mis- or you know what I mean like I think a better example that I was thinking of is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn is colorblind so his colors are always an extreme palette because he can't he literally can't see anything so he tells the cinematographers look I can't see that you got to bring a color that I can see <laughs> so then it, that helps influence the cinematographer and and the colors that are used. that's why a lot of his colors are neon and bright and they're like really pushed to the edge of the extreme of what the color is because that's what he can see but that's out of his control so does his color palette style now become an uh, an authorship auteur type of thing because it was something that he didn't have control of initially. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that, does that I, I would just sense? call that his style. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he's an auteur because he brings that color aspect to it. You know what I mean? Like I just, I don't agree with the idea that people in filmmaking can be auteurs. Like I just, I just disagree. Like it just, it doesn't make sensed that this would be one person's like authorship sort of a thing ever at, at the same time like nobody could remake only god forgives that's the true. way he does it like uh, bring this man <laughs> like 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 or driver or, you yeah know, like, i was gonna say oh, these movies, gonna these, drive. If, if these somebody, movies are coming somebody up. did drive or the neon demon i'll say the neon demon is the newest one which is like one of my favorite <laughs> films of all time it oh, is so good fucking brilliant fucking <laughs> so brilliant good. so if anybody redid that movie I think not only would it be, like, maybe 45 minutes shorter, it would be, like, completely different. It would be shot differently. It would be... The color would be completely different. It wouldn't be the same movie at all. So it's like, well, I mean, like, if you stripped all of Refn's style, it's, it's not even remotely the same movie because the movie is style. Like, like... Totally. So I don't even know... It's tough. I, I mean, mean, there's no way you can you can't argue that there people don't have a distinct style. I right, mean, right. Yeah, if you no, take because they, they do, they yeah. do. If you and uh, take the whole history of Batman from the conception to the newest Batman movies out now, and just see the evolution. You know, take Tim Burton's Batman and Joel Schumacher's Batman versus Nolan's Batman, and you can just see the complete difference in styles. So, like. There is something there right now, whether or not it's full on authorship, that's obviously debatable, but there is something there that you can't argue with. And Mm -hmm. that is a distinct style. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, you watch Drive and you know, it's that guy's movie. And one of the interesting things about Drive is that the script had like... 80, it was like 80% more like they, they took out 80% of the dialogue in Drive and just had it be like this kind of visual experience with like 
a lot of looking and and stuff like that, which worked for that movie. Like I I, I adore that movie. It's a great movie. Um, directors will always bring their styles to it. I guess what I have a problem with is how like the obsession over certain types of movies that critics uh, claim to be the best in there. I mean, obviously, like, some movies deserve to be up on a pedestal, you know what I mean? Because they're amazing work of, works of art. But, like, you know, like a Todd Phillips comedy, you could easily argue that he's an auteur because he has this specific style that, that he always goes to. Yet, I doubt anyone would ever call him an auteur because he makes very studio feeling like they feel like studio films they feel like studio comedies you know what i mean or um or uh, roland emmerich i think is a pretty good example of that he makes disaster huge budget disaster movies i mean he's made every major one that's come out in the past like 20 years you know and is he an auteur i mean I, like i don't think anyone's don't calling that guy an auteur you know what I mean? So. And that's yeah. that's why I hate it is because it's is like it? here's all the best directors in the history of cinema and they're all our tourists. But all you plebes who are, you know, trying to just pay your rent by directing these low budget movies um, or by directing these crappy studio movies, you, you're all just you're all just trash. Like, that's so, it's so like, fucking rude. You know what I mean? So it's like the uh. real question is like, you know, or stylist versus author, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so like, if you really delve in there, so it's like a lot of the auteurs that we're thinking of, like the Coen brothers and Tarantino, not only do they direct, but they also write. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there is there, does that mean that authors can only be or auteurs can only be auteurs if they have a combination of things if they don't just do one thing or because like Roland Emmerich like I'm guessing he only directs I mean I could totally, be wrong but he directs, probably only yeah. directs yeah. Um, whereas you know Coen Brothers they produce write direct they also edit they yeah. under they, they edit under Roderick Jane they, they came up yeah. as editors they were yeah they, they edited the Evil Dead which we're going to be talking about so like yeah I mean it's so like you know like Keith said earlier, Kubrick, you know, it was basically his own cinematographer. You know, he was basically an editor. Um, wrote it. And he wrote it, um, at least co-wrote, you know, and uh, uh, was the director, too. Wes Anderson, he co-writes. Um, you to- you can totally tell he has a very big say in the way it looks visually with the cinematographer. Um, and he's the director. So maybe, you know, auteurs are, you know, primarily people that are like do combinations of things and stylists are people that maybe are filmmakers that uh that bring an element or elements to the film that are very them mm-hmm. i don't know it's interesting yeah that, it, that could be a whole other topic yeah. too <laughs> because i think i think the only director that you could call an auteur is shane caruth and the reason is because he directs he writes he produces he edits. Stars in. Yeah, he stars in it. He even sets up the lights and does the cinematography for his movies. He doesn't do the camera work, obviously, because he's starring in it. But he, like, sets up the shot and, and gets it going. He even does the folly work. Like, he'll go through and do the all the sound design and and really do it himself. And to me, if, if anyone is going to call someone an auteur, like, then 
it's gonna be him because he is just the person who made that movie you know what i mean so <laughs> yeah yeah i just uh, yeah that's the, that's the only person i think that i know of i mean not you know i don't know every director but you know i mean david lynch does that too i mean he does his sound design he writes he directs um you know he 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 does you know a lot um he even does some of the costuming he does some of the prop making he does a lot of the art in the film mm-hmm. um, and von trier von trier yeah. writes directs i mean he, he does a lot of the camera operation himself he edits yeah. like produces his stuff too like because mm-hmm. you like you'll see lynch like get a bucket of paint and start painting a wall like a different color because the shot isn't right in his head like he's that he's he's so hands-on you know like he's got like paint in his hair you know and he's like telling you know you know marion cotillard and some you know gucci commercial like okay you need to do this you know like he's like he's very like hands-on so i don't know yeah it's interesting yeah this has kind of been an interesting conversation because we i think we've opened up many facets of what makes an tour like way more than actually I thought we were going to in this little amount that's of time. Yeah. That's, crazy. <laughs> it's like, that's why it's so heavily debated and why there's sections of textbooks and film books that are dedicated yeah. to discussing this one theory. I think uh, Kaveh would be proud of us right now, guys. <laughs> okay. He totally would be. I'm glad. I don't know him, totally but I'm, I'm, thank you, Kaveh. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best. Um, I think I kind of there was a point I wanted to make that was kind of uh, what you were talking about earlier, Byron, with the money being a reason to um, and why the director gets so much credit as an auteur because you have to think too that like when someone like, for example, if you were to get if you were to have the opportunity to work on a Tarantino movie. You are going to do everything in your power to make sure what Tarantino wants is what happens, right? So, like, your decision-making for whatever you're doing on that movie is clearly influenced by what you think he is going to want and what look you think he is going to want, right? So, like, in that sense, I could see where it is sort of pushing towards... He's such an author, quote unquote, of his movies that you're not going to do anything to try and change his movies, right? You're going to do whatever you possibly can to to, to make to his vision him. happen. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, to serve him, mm-hmm. and and I think another and one of the reasons why this is the case. Well, one probably because you like the that person, like you know directors get hired because someone likes a style it's and it can sell and you want to work with a director because you like their movies and like their style and you're you're stoked to work with them but also you want to make money and writing the coattails of someone who is a big director and who can be considered a tour is a way to make money especially if you're like a contracted production company who's was contracted to do like grip work or gaff work or whatever like you want to make money for your business, but you also want to put get your name out there for the next movie, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, wow, this this gaff crew was awesome. Let's get them on the next one because they we know that they're going to deliver. So like, you know, having these people who are auteurs, quote unquote, propels things. Even if it doesn't exist, it still propels things, and it it forces things and change and think you know just things to happen in the film world. Right, like mm-hmm. it, there's no denying that 
having Tarantino show up or Spielberg to show up to say he wants to make a movie that it's going to just stir all the waters and all the fish are going to come out to try and get on the Spielberg whale. You know what I mean? Like that, that's just it. So whether or not O'Tour exists, it's still a force, yeah. which is kind of an odd thought. To oh, think and, about. and that's what yeah. the people say, George Lucas, and I got to hate bringing up Star Wars all the time, but it's so relevant here. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, <laughs> George Lucas, huge creative force on Star Wars. Writes and directs the first one, nails it, huge hit. Writes the second one and third one um, with other directors. And then decides he's going to write and direct again with the three prequels. And they are not great. They're They're not great movies. But George Lucas still kind of is Star Wars like he built the entire world and built this whole thing um I mean some would argue that Indiana Jones wouldn't exist without, without George a Lucas Spielberg yeah. combo you know yeah and you know George Lucas did American Graffiti which is in like the national film registry you know what I mean like that that film's not fucking around um but yet I would say that because George Lucas made three stinkers right in a row and then kind of hasn't really made a movie since then. People would, critics would say he's not an auteur. You know what I mean? Because it's bad. But really, he's more auteur of the prequels. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I just, I just don't get it. I just, (laughs) I I just hate it. I just think it's essentially. I mean, if George Lucas was to come out of retirement and say, look, I'm going to direct a movie. You're going to have a bunch of people who are, like, jumping on the George Lucas band bandwagon. Oh, dude, I'd be regardless. right there. I'd, I'd see that yeah. movie totally. I don't yeah, care what exactly. So, like, you know, auteur or not, whether it exists, it's still, like I said, it's... It's a marketable George, thing. Yeah. Like, you can I mean, make money off of the idea of the auteur theory. Yeah, I, I, mean, I totally agree. I think if he were to come out of retirement and make a movie, it would be sold as George Lucas's whatever, right? Which yeah. comes back to what, that maybe that is a better definition for O'Tour. They'd even probably put like, one. you know, from the legendary mind of George Lucas, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah that's, that's, that's the other Star thing. Wars. That reminds me. Um, George Miller, right? The auteur of our time, known for Babe, Happy Feet, and Mad Max. And Mad Max. Well, like, whose idea was the auteur theory? Like, come on. Come on, Wait, film critics. Well, that's Jesus. the thing, too. It's like, if the movies are really different, does that not make them an auteur or does that make them more of an auteur because they it's like Soderbergh can. it's like the same Soderbergh so, yeah thing, right? same as Soderbergh yeah. yeah well another thing that Keith touched upon that I find interesting as well is like the whole serving like so like Roger Deakins when you listen to him talk about his collaborations with either the Coen brothers or like Denis Villeneuve you know people that he's worked with more than once he talks like he's serving the Coen brothers or he's serving Denis on with what they want and I honestly think some of the best um work that some of these cinematographers or or composer music composers and stuff have done are because they're really wanting to please the director Mm -hmm. um and when they and when they and some of their best work comes out from that and 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 it's not only just because it's I mean they're doing the work right but you have the director steering them in a particular direction where in the end they've come up with something that i mean obviously 
you know, the Coen brothers aren't like writing musical notes down on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. but they're steering, you know, um, Clint. Oh, no, I forget the composer's name that they work with Clint a lot. Clint Mansell? It's, oh, crap. That doesn't sound right. It's, uh, it's somebody. But then we, they work with two people. There's like the music supervisor. Uh, oh, gosh. That's sad that I don't remember. But anyway, um, like, uh, let's, let's say John Williams and, and uh, Spielberg, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. like Spielberg, I, I mean, he might be into music. I'm not sure, but I, Burnett? you know, T-Bone Burn is like the music supervisor guy. Yeah. Is but that then, not uh, what you're talking about? He's like, he, I mean, he's very associated with the Coen brothers because he, you know, he had a huge hand on like, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and the whole, mm -hmm. the soundtrack and the you know, same with the Lady Killers and stuff like that. But like the, the original source or the original score is done by this other guy and he's worked with the Coen brothers a lot. I forget. Um, I'm looking it up. Crap. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. Like, um... I find it interesting because in that sense, if they're serving someone, then that kind of means still that the author is the person that they're serving. Right. Yet that person necessarily or people can't get what they're looking for without them. Exactly. Like, it's, it's a like, symbiotic yeah. relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so exactly. I, I don't know. It's like, you know, because like, you know that Roger Deakins knowledge of glass and lighting probably far exceeds most directors. Oh yeah. Right. Totally. Um, but yet he's still serving, you know, well, cause you gotta director. think about it too. Like in, in letting someone it, be an Carter author. Burwell? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Carter Burwell. Carter Burwell. Yeah. That's the Coen brothers score people who also did yeah, he, a lot of Spike Jones movies and David O. Composer. Russell. Hmm. Nice. Fun facts. Um, Sorry, Keith. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, oh, so by ha by letting there be an author and letting it and letting yourself serve someone in the sense that we're talking about, it actually probably gives like, if, for example, Roger Deakins way more freedom because they know that he's gonna deliver on what they want, so they don't have to like tell him and then that also yeah, that gives him that opportunity to really paint in the way that he wants to paint mm -hmm. you know so like you know letting the Coen brothers be their author you know it, it, that's fine you can have that but then I'm gonna have this you know kind of a thing and it's not and I'm not saying that in like they're trying to take from each other because they don't like it but it, it is a symbiotic relationship right like yeah. it, it it just allows him to be able to do more because there exists this idea that the coen brothers are going to make a specific movie you know yeah totally. you see that with actors too like um you know heath ledger in the dark knight and um oh god who played catwoman in the dark knight rises Anne hathaway Anne hathaway like she's essentially you know she like said publicly like I am trying to create the Nolan version of Catwoman. You know what I mean? So she, and that's exactly what Heath Ledger is trying to do. Like he's trying, like what is the Nolan, the Chris Nolan version of this character? And uh, so the, it kind of like informs their acting. You know what I mean? And like how they approach their character is like what type of character should be existing in this world. And you know, obviously they have conversations with Nolan. But they're, that's, like, in the forefront of their mind when they're coming up with the character. Because ultimately, this needs to come from 
you know, it needs to mesh. Like, someone, this person is, like, running this movie, and it needs to, like, connect. Because you can't have, like, Catwoman with a lisp. Like, that That just wouldn't work. <laughs> it would just be so weird. So, Or if she just started showing up in dresses, like, halfway through the movie or something. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like, really f- expensive, fancy dresses. Yeah. 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 Like, in this bright yellow. Like, who's the wardrobe person like <laughs> they have everything right except that one thing what's going on with it but you're you're totally right and it, it it's kind of the bigger idea that like art really is better when you're free to work within boundaries like art is creative because you're overcoming something in a in a creative way right so like in the sense of Anne Hathaway it's like well yeah she's limited by trying to create Nolan's Catwoman but that's actually freeing because creativity comes because you're working over essentially an obstacle Mm -hmm. it goes back to what uh, Von Trier's five obstructions like the creativity of what is actually you know if I don't have sound in a movie well how am I going to really portray this movie and make sure the emotion still comes across you know what I mean so like that that is a freedom that you have and again like you know since you're working in Christopher Nolan's auteur world you have the freedom to do what you want within the bounds of that you know so again it's a it's a force there's a force there you know which is weird because like every time you know not that i've helped out on any of jacob's films but i've heard that he just says no to everything (laughs) 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 no no (laughs) no no no. because i was like well i guess there's there's, there are a few things i did where i was just like no we're doing it the way that it is right here like we should have figured it out before if oh, yeah. you know what I mean, like sometimes I I've done that, you know, because no, because time is tight. But I, yeah, I'm totally funny. being facetious. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sometimes it's true. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something comforting about like getting or like what was I gonna say? Like you. And it's a th- I had this thought, like, why do people work on Woody Allen's films? Because I've heard that Woody Allen, as a director, basically doesn't, like, direct you. Like, he writes what's on the paper, and then you figure out what's on the paper, right? He's not really directing you in any sense. Like, oh, you need to hit this motion and this mark and yada, yada, yada. But there is something sort of, like that's nice to know and again where the autorship informs because if you work with Woody Allen you know what you're going to get you know what type mm-hmm. of style and writing and authorship he has so there's it's kind of comforting and also like actors that's why a lot of actors who do movies will do stage too because it's a different challenge and a different uh, obstacle or, or learning experience you know what I mean so like go I don't exactly know exact where I was going with that, but like that's kind of like David Cronenberg. Like he he his films are so David Cronenberg um, for a variety of reasons, but like he doesn't have he he says that like to make a movie, it's like ninety percent casting. So once he's cast the people that are like perfect for the characters that he's envisioned, then he doesn't really have to direct. He just mm-hmm. has to sit there, put the camera on, mm-hmm. and make and let them and let them just do their thing. He's anti rehearsal. He's anti storyboarding. He just he lets the movie come to him 
while the actors are doing their thing. And he said, it just, everything comes naturally after the actors have been picked and cast. And I if think he's, that's and Corinne, too. And, like, if he's, like, you know, cast correctly, then he doesn't have to do shit. He just has to say, okay, next scene, this is what we're going to do, this is what I'm mm-hmm. looking for, and then he just lets it lets it happen. Yeah. Which is a completely, completely different type of style than the Coen brothers, who have everything, you know, pre-drawn and, and everything, you know, very precise and very, you know, so it's interesting. But yet Cronenberg is one that I've heard that's been considered an auteur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so Just weird. like Woody Allen, you know, it's Because weird, he's right? literally saying, I do not direct the actors. I don't, right. I don't direct the movie, but I, I work, maybe I work with my casting director who, who, who is casting this, this group of people and then he just lets them go. Yeah. So like he's literally a- saying, I'm not directing the movie. Yet you have all these f- film theorists who are looking at films after the fact who call him an auteur. Well, he's an auteur, I think, because of his themes. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, I don't think which could uh, could be the writer too. So yeah, he's 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 uh, he's, he's normally the writer, but like, yeah, it's 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 weird because like again, like the director, right? There's so many different types of of of, of ways to direct. You know, like you were saying, Keith, about Harmony Korine, you brought him up. Harmony Korine kind of puts his actors in an environment, and then with that environment that Harmony Korine has um, made, the movie comes from that. It, it, it comes from the environment. It doesn't necessarily come from, okay, and Selena, you're going to do this, and this guy's going to walk up to you. You know, mm-hmm. he puts them in a situation, or he'll pull, like, you know, James Franco behind, you know, or yep. over to, like, you know, in Spring Breakers, and be like, okay, I'm, I haven't told Selena, you know, that I'm gonna that we're gonna do this, but I want you to do this to her, and then from that the camera rolls, and then from that something comes out of it. So it's it's more like kind it's of like the Malick style of torpedoing, like right. we talked about before. Right. Yeah, I, that, oh, was, man, that was something so... that uh, I think George Lucas did with American Graffiti. Is is that same style of like he kept surprising his actors and he kept using the takes. That where the actors like they felt like they made a mistake or they did something wrong. He kept using those takes, so it's like, you know, to, l- looking back at the actors, they're looking back in the film like, I cl- I broke character and like I I I, almost, I spiked. I looked at some people off screen, and they used that take in the movie. So it's like a weird s- style. But you wouldn't say that George Lucas is an auteur who did that type of thing yet he did do it so i don't i don't know i don't know did, yeah <laughs> no, that's kind of like i think a modern example of what you're talking about is uh the issue of the hateful eight and the guitar the big controversy with the guitar not, not the angel right <laughs> not the angel <laughs> unfortunately uh, unfortunately they didn't destroy uh, some precious five. angel <laughs> no it was the it was the vintage martin guitar that was broken that was an act, the act it was for some reason they broke the real guitar instead of the stand-in guitar and then the reaction that you get of um uh, Jen- is it Jennifer Lee? Jennifer Jason Lee, or whatever her name is, I yeah. can't remember. Um, her reaction on screen is the reaction to Kurt Russell breaking the real guitar because she knew it was the real one. So it's like a legitimate reaction to something that happened, you know, off screen or whatever, and wasn't planned. But then there it is, you know, right in the movie. 
It's, um, yeah, it's like and, you know yeah, DiCaprio and, like yeah. uh, in in uh, Django Unchained when he like hits himself. Oh, when he makes yeah. himself. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 like, yeah. And, and then it's like yeah. you know Christoph Waltz is like looking on like oh shit you know is Should he okay? Stop? But yeah. it makes that scene better even though as viewers were subconsciously not even aware of the fact that that was real until we heard about it you know mm-hmm. yeah um, but yet you that that scene makes you're like whoa when you see it because like you can tell by the actors face like like that's that shit's not acting yeah, <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which which is so interesting but like according to a tour theory that was something that came from the director you know what i mean so but it didn't you know like it totally didn't it was an accident you know what i mean so yeah, yeah totally. like even though the themes of it and stuff like the recurring things but that's kind of like one of the just the issues i i just have with like my my opinion of of, of this idea of an auteur is it just like it cannot exist in a movie like if a stunt man uh breaks his leg doing a stunt in a movie it's kind. It's kind of your job to use that take where he broke his leg and fit it in. Like uh, there was the guy who died on the Triple X movie, um, and they used the take of him dying. I mean, they didn't. They you don't see him dying in the movie, but they like use the front end of the take at to like tribute as like tribute to him. So like if someone breaks a bone, you kind of have to use that take unless you're a total douche. In which case. I'm sure a bunch of people who call themselves film auteurs and not film directors would probably use whatever the fuck take they want because they're so far up their own asses that they can't make a good movie. Oh, man. Well, I think we've kind of, in our little discussion here, you know, I, I, I think we're kind of like, you know, auteur maybe isn't the right word. It's more of like you're kind of like a stylist you know if anything or some sort of something along those lines right yeah, where like yeah. i just think i think the term and and then trying to you know stuff filmmaking into the same type of word and thought process as like a novel you can author a novel because you clearly wrote the novel but you know it, it, you're you're comparing two completely different forms of art mm-hmm. for some odd reason um but i just kind of wanted to before we shift into the specific movies, I just want to end this little part of the discussion with this interesting um, line out of this book that I was reading as part of my research called The Film Experience. Uh, so basically they say, so like whether or not you believe auteur theory is a thing or whether you don't, wherever you fall, wherever you uh, fall, uh, basically what this book says or claims is that uh, quote the popularization of auteur theory saved many Hollywood studio productions from historical obscurity and critical neglect so I think that's a really interesting statement to kind of think about that it, it kind of informs what we were just talking about where if it if auteur doesn't exist well there is a force there that is going to go unnamed that does exist that is it, you can't you know it's there yeah, and you can't fight against that. So yeah, I think I think that's right, and I, I honestly I think it makes film theory and you know people who write film critiques and and shit it just makes it a little bit easier to talk about um, when it's this extremely complex thing that happens, and frankly, when you're making a movie, it's 
it's not really about so at some point it becomes not about your vision but you just want to like survive the day you know what i mean like you just want to yep. you just want to go home to a bed and not die you know what i mean so yep. uh, you know <laughs> yeah. but like you know looking at movies after the fact which is kind of what we're trying not to do with this podcast but but i i think a tier theory really helps people who are studying film and who you know who are critics but you know, frankly, I don't really care for any of those people because they don't help me make movies. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm never going to talk to you again, Jacob. <laughs> Good. I'm kidding. Good. We Good. support film critics here. All film critics' lives matter. Yeah. At the same time, you all matter to Keith, not to me. <laughs> yeah. most. I think most artists would tell critics to go stuff it, but... You know, yes. at the same time, critics can help get a movie sold. I know. So it, it's, necessary it's evil? I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. a bittersweet it's thing weird. with critics. Yeah, critics are weird because, like, I, I enjoy, like, listening or reading what a lot of critics have to say. But do I really hold it as, like, a valuable piece of information regarding the film? No. Because, like, <laughs> yeah. they had no, they had nothing to do with the film. Well, yeah, yeah, and then... It, They're just looking yeah. at it after the fact. Right. Well, yeah. and then, you know, a good chunk of them have never made a movie. Right. Either, yeah. you know, and I'm not, that doesn't necessarily undercut your ability to have an opinion, right? But at the same time, it, it's it like... It kind of does, though. <laughs> but yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, we have we can have opinions on productions that we had no part of, right? True. So, sure. Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, it's like... Opinion, if you're writing a critique of a movie and you weren't there... I don't know. I well, don't if your job and you're, and you're crediting the director for every single thing and claiming he's an auteur, just because it's easier to write your piece of critique. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> I think we're all we can all assume what I'm trying to say, but I'm not going to say it. Out. <laughs> yeah, I think if your job is to be a film critic, then you have to at least make one movie in your life. You know, I to agree. kind of get some perspective, even if it's you know. like. The Evil Dead, just like you remake a scene that you really like. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. Just go do something. There you go. Try that. Try to remake a scene somehow and bring all the elements together to make a movie happen. You, Keith, know? you did that with uh, Pulp Fiction, right? I, yeah, I did that for a, it was a theater directing class, and they let me do uh, uh, make a film instead. So I redid the the scene in Pulp Fiction where with the hamburger and the whole spiel he does with Ezekiel whatever. That was actually really cool though and I liked how you used black and white you know because mm-hmm. you and yeah. also you brought yourself to it too you know like you didn't just copy or emulate what you had seen before you made it your own which which is cool. Yeah and your your lead actor in that was pretty rad who was that blonde, uh, blonde guy who was that guy Curtis, <laughs> Curtis, yeah, his Curtis. Name is Curtis, yeah, Curtis yeah. Uh, Gin. I can't remember his last name. <laughs> we worked with him on when we tried to do that one nighty night or whatever. He was in that. Oh yeah, he was in the. God, now I'm an asshole for not remembering. Okay, <laughs> you gotta cut this part out. I'm looking his name up now. I'm sure he won't listen. It's fun. I'm sure he has no, no yeah, idea that was, who we it's, are. It's a trip. Even to try and just remake something is fucking hard. Curtis you know? Scott Gelhausen. There you go. Thank you, That's Curtis right. Scott Gelhausen. You were good <laughs> in um, Keith's movie. 
nice yeah here's a here's a fun little remake to do um but yeah so let's we're an hour and 42 minutes deep and we haven't even talked about our first movie so <laughs> we, <laughs> we have just, issues I think <laughs> no it's totally okay though because I mean the point is the topic right so like as long if we 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 covered the topic and we're gonna cover it more obviously but I think that was a pretty hefty you know discussion on an O-Tour theory for sure um, so our first film is Yojimbo Made in 1961, the film stars Toshiba. Mof- oh, to- Toshiba, <laughs> dude, stupid. <laughs> the thing, the Toshiba computer. Oshinawa. Well, Toyota. Well, the computer what, what will autocorrect. In, in Dodgeball, it was like Toshiba Oshiota Oshinawa or something. Uh, in Dodgeball. Know. Dodgeball the movie, yeah. Yeah. I don't, Su- oh no, what? Suzuki Toyota Oshinawa. That's the. <laughs> Oh that's the God. dodgeball. I completely forgot the about really, that. The best dodgeball player in the world. Oh, God. Well, anyway, <laughs> the, the program I use for this loves to autocorrect, and it autocorrects to weird stuff. So it's Toshiro Mifune, Tatsuya Nakanaka. Oh, God. Keep his half Here so he gets a Here pass. we go. Here we go. Tatsuya Nakadai, Nakadai, Yoko, Sukasa, Isuzo, Yamada, Daisuke, Kato, and Sa- Saizaboro. This sounds like one long name. <laughs> sounds so racist. <laughs> I'm not trying to be racist. You're I'm totally literally racist. trying. I'm trying my best to sound out, sound know, these that's out. Why it's it's, uh, that's why it's racist. Well, at least we have the one half Asian individual trying to be doing, worse. I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, wide variety of Japanese individuals. <laughs> no, but, but seriously. Uh, so Daisuke Kato and Seizaburo Kawa Kawazu. I think is how you say that. Among many others, because there actually is a lot of people in this movie, like a lot of uh, extras and stuff. Uh, so it was written, directed, and edited by Kira Kurosawa. It was shot by... See? And it th- this is what I'm saying. It changed the name from whatever it was before to Kazoo. So it changed the guy's Japanese name to Kazoo. So I don't know exactly... <laughs> what, what are you talking about? The person who did the cinematography for the movie... Oh, kazoo! It. Oh uh, yeah. What? How? What's? How's it actually spelled? K a z u o. Yeah. See. So kazuo. Kazuo. Kazuo Miyagawa is his name, but my program changed it to kazoo <laughs> instead of kazuo. Yeah. That's awesome. I gotta check that when I do these when I do foreign names. Um, yeah, so music was composed by Masaru Saito. Production design and costume design was done by Yoshiko Muraki. So that's interesting. That's the first film we've come across where the production design and the costume design was done by the same person, which is really atypical because um, that's a lot of work for one person. Jeez. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, wow. Well. Uh, the film was shot entirely in Japan on sound stages, and I want to say on location. Now I looked this up, and I could not find anything because it, it really pissed me off. Um, I kind of the film looks like it was shot on location, but I actually am thinking that it was shot entirely on sound stages and like in you know on a state like inside instead of outside. Which I could be wrong with. Um, yeah, that's hard to tell because some of those opening shots seem to be 
out on location. However, there is that weird element that it could totally have been staged. Especially like when you look at there's the shot where he's watching the other samurai guy like run away and you kind of look at it and it's like could be Matt. And but see the other thing that it was hard to help inform that too is the if it is on sound stages like the lighting is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Because it looks like the sun. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like so and I know that like with Seven Samurai he built like no, that was all built. So that was not like an in studio affair. So it's not like it's unheard of for him to do that. You know, I actually, when you look at it, you almost think, wow, did you really just build this village in the middle of somewhere? You know, like. Kind of reminded me of uh, The Magician, the beginning, in the sense that it was all, mm, you know, soundstage. Yeah. But yet, it actually, they, they pulled it off so well that it was actually kind of like, is it? You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just like they lit it really well in The Magician. And I, I wonder if it's just really like master class lighting like i i wonder if that's just what it is it just looks so real yeah the black and white i mean it's just kind of brilliant yes <laughs> so yeah. good dude so really good. you can do that with black and white i e- e- i wouldn't say easier but like sort of easier <laughs> you know what i think I mean? it's yeah no, i think you're right i think like, you're right yeah you can like it's a whole art stuff form, but yeah it's different but like you can you can make a soundstage look more real in black and white than you could color you right. know what i mean Definitely, definitely. So, and, and they're yeah. lazy. You're lazy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally joking. Totally joking. I'm the lazy so, one. If any listeners know the answer to that question, I would love to know the answer. So go ahead and shoot an email over to btbfilmspodcast at gmail.com and let me know. Um, nice. So the film is considered a, I'm going to butcher this again, Jidaigeki film um, or period drama. So essentially Japanese or period drama. Um, and it's clearly born out of the American Western genre. Uh, and when you really look at Kurosawa's filmography in terms of his samurai films and his noir style gangster movies uh, they are entirely influenced by American and Hollywood filmmaking but also are influential to those same genres like yeah. it's this really strange relationship where it's like he took the inspiration but then flipped it on his head and now everyone else is taking the inspiration from him uh, which can be most clearly seen with a fistful of dollars which is like a direct remake of yojimbo by sergio leone except it's unofficial so they essentially unofficial but everyone knows it's a it's a and then they had to go to court and but they settled privately um which is a sign that they were guilty because then what they still settle privately. You're guilty. And then they still didn't credit Kurosawa. No, but I think they received like 20% of their gross receipts on it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Plus a large sum of quiche. <laughs> of quiche? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know the cash, quiche, you know, pie. Oh, I was, for some reason I was thinking... Yeah, never mind. I'm just going to let you awkwardly burn in, <laughs> in silence. Well, that's the only way I know how to do things. <laughs> when you when you mentioned like how Kurosawa was influenced by genres, but then he in turn influenced that respective genre, um, Scorsese is kind of like that. And it's funny because Scorsese like loves Kurosawa films. Totally. Um, and in fact, he even played... Um, as an actor, as Vincent Van Gogh, I believe, in a um, short 
by Kurosawa. Oh, that's a trip. Is, oh, that's pretty cool. That's a yeah. trip. But, um, well, know, yeah, but yeah, it's like Scorsese and every gangster movie that's come since the 90s right you know, like yeah. it's all been tr- the scorsese gangster yeah basically that's some yeah. of the, the cool things about really any genre or in any sort of artistic form is is people kind of sharing their the stories and you, just kind of like intermixing like what's going on you know like the greeks were known for this uh early on like you know with all their greek god stories like gods would just show up randomly in in their plays Yep. And people would know exact like the history of the gods, and they would know of that god, and they would know exactly why them coming in is funny at this moment. So they just kind of like intermixed it. So almost like in a cinematic universe, kind of like what Marvel is doing, you know, um, except on a way larger scale with many many gods. Um, and so that whole like sharing of stories is really what progresses film for me, like in my opinion. Because, you know, you're, you're getting people who are taking stuff from here, taking stuff from over here, mixing it in to create this new thing and making it work. But then other people are doing that same thing to your stuff. And it's just kind of cool that everyone's just kind of trying to build on top of one another. And it just makes for more interesting movies, in, in my opinion. Well, that's really the thing. I mean, Tarantino even says, I steal from everyone. You yeah. Know, steals from every movie he's ever seen. So that's all movie making. And generally, I would... I would say art in general is taking one idea and that and using it and changing it and yeah. developing it. And I- imitation know. is the best form of flattery. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. No, but it's interesting that you say the cross genre thing, because a good chunk of Kurosawa's movies are Shakespeare or reimagined Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. It just in the Japanese feudal area, a feudal era. Um, like, uh, hidden fortress and ran, um, I think Ran is Macbeth, if I'm not mistaken, or is it uh, King Lear, one of the two. Um, but it's like a big, you know, obvious Shakespearean play, but just played out in Japanese uh, feudal Jap- feudal Japan. Uh, but kind of getting back to what I was saying in terms of his influence and being influential, um, he was Yojimbo, his... Now, people say they don't know if this is direct or not, um, but it's kind of the same story as Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, and Dashiell Hammett's also known for um, the Maltese Falcon. Uh, so it's also the Yojimbo is also influenced by the detective novel The Glass Key, also by Hammett. Um, and it was a film that was made in the noir style, which you can kind of see the noir influence on Yojimbo as well. Even like the musical score. Yeah, you know? totally. The musical <laughs> score too. I love the musical musical score in that movie. Um, and then the Western gunslinger prototype. You know, in this case, it's a there is an actual gunslinger. You know, with a revolver, but in this case, it's a sword. Someone who has a sword, but is still the the person who kind of just stumbles into town, and there's a big problem in town, and somehow he gets wrapped up in it. You know, and then he just walks the fuck away. Um, so all those these. American stories are influences on Yojimbo, but then, like I said, Yojimbo ended up being an influence for essentially, and Kurosawa's samurai films in general kind of became an influence for like the rest of the Western genre, expanded into like the spaghetti Western or the American Western or however you want to define it. But essentially, all of those were influenced by, you know, Yojimbo. And I can't remember when Sandro came out. I think it was but, 
a year or two after. I, I feel like it was pretty soon, yeah. so likely that one also had the It was influence. a year after. Okay. So it's kind of a little overshadowed by Yojimbo, but essentially both in tandem, because there are, it is a duo of films, um, essentially influenced, yeah, the, the Western genre, and to, probably to a degree, I would say, the noir genre, too, you know, as we see, like, neo-noir nowadays and stuff like that. I mean, I think Drive is kind of a reimagined Yojimbo to a degree. I know. Bringing back <laughs> Drive again, but... film bros, dude. Twice dude. in one episode. Gosh. Dude, you don't fuck with Nicholas Winding <laughs> <laughs> Wait, just off topic for a second. When I posted to my Facebook the first episode, uh, everyone's like, oh, you should do a Film Bro episode on blah, blah, blah. So we should totally do a Film Bro episode. We kind of have to. We, yeah. yeah that, I'm you know down. what I mean? I'm I down. feel like we'd have a lot of fun with that. You know what we I mean? should change. We should change our voices though to be more like broish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll be like a feminist bro who, like, you know, like PC principal from South Park. Like, I'll be, I'll be that. You know, I'll, be... I'll shift all the pitch tones of our voices around. <laughs> you gotta respect women, bro. I'll just make it sound like you're constantly sucking in helium the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, our whole conversation is one giant breath in. So so we're all like talking like this. See, like the whole time. It'll be sweet. So yeah, that's kind of the spiel I had for the first film, Yojimbo. So I don't know, what do you guys think? Man, I for me. I'm not a huge Kurosawa, like... I mean, I've seen maybe four of his films. I haven't seen a whole bunch of his movies, so I'm not, like, a huge Kurosawa, like, aficionado. I really enjoy his films. I don't think there's one that I haven't, like, disliked, you know? Um, But I really do like Yojimbo. I haven't seen Sanjuro yet, but I've seen, you know, The Seven Samurai and um, Kegamusha or something. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, Kegamusha, yeah. Yeah, Kegamusha, um... Or but, Kage, I think it's Kage Musha. Ah, Kage Musha. Yeah, yeah. No, which was awesome. I love the colors in that movie. But uh, I think, like, in the sense of what we were talking about earlier about, like, you know, being an auteur, I think what really, for me, when I'm looking at his other films in relation to Yojimbo, the things that really come across to me would be, like, the black and white and the way he shoots and like camera movement and stuff i everything seems very thought out totally like mm-hmm. it, it, like not only not only just visually but like theme wise and just i can tell even though i have no idea if this is true or not i can tell that like he must have had a really good relationship with um with uh Toshiba Mifune. <laughs> Gosh dang it. Oh my god, I did it. The wa- they make Walkmans, by the way. Oh my god. We loved Walkmans. Uh, the, the main actor. Toshiro Mifune. Toshiro, yeah. yeah. Um, oh my god. Um, Keith is, or I'm sorry, Byron is not half Asian, so he does not get a pass. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> but yeah, like I feel that like he, the relationship between Toshiro and Akira Kurosawa must have been really good that, that their communication was good because I feel that the, the the film rides heavily on the main character and how he acts with the rest of the town I, I, I don't know how to explain that but I feel that that's something that I've seen in his other films too where 
not so much the main character, but just how all the other actors relate to each other and to the film as a whole, thematic-wise, or even just the way they're 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 walking or their the way their stance is. Like I feel that that might be very Kurosawa, but I could be totally wrong on that. I, I have no idea, but this is something I noticed. Well, I think compared to a lot of, I mean, he's Kurosawa. If you were to look at like a spectrum of directors, I would put Kurosawa closer to Kubrick in terms of like the thought and the control over what was happening on right. screen. I kind think like Bergman too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So like, I think he was a very hands-on director like he knew what he wanted and wanted to always direct his people in that way and it you are right uh the toshiro mifune and, and kurosawa did have a good relationship up until redbeard and then that that completely fell apart after that movie but uh up until then i mean that's why they were he was in like basically every one of his kurosawa's movies because i mean it's like the it's like what it's like what we were just talking about earlier where you directors and, and filmmakers find a group that they like and then they just work with the same group of people every time and that's why generally Kurosawa's movies end up being similar in style and look because he was doing a lot of like the upper end of the filmmaking and then worked with the same people to make sure that his his vision was the same but also it's interesting to think about uh, going back to our discussion earlier too is like the begin uh, Kurosawa's otourism is mainly born out of his samurai films. Like, if there's one thing he's known for, I think is his samurai films. But actually, his like earlier filmography, because the samurai films didn't come till later on, like way later on. As earlier filmography, um, I think Ikuru is like you know probably one of the most famous movies ever made, and. It had nothing to do with samurais, you know. It was more of like a, a modern Jap- Japanese storytelling, and obviously, kind of went to the gangster genre as well. But like, he went from doing that to the samurai stuff. So, if we are to call him an auteur, where's the line? You know, is he an auteur because he was able to do both of those, and they're still considered a Kurosawa movie, or is he an auteur just for samurai movies because that's what we know him for now? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're question. looking at it from like a marketing standpoint i would say then sure you know like whatever gets the whatever gets you money you know what i mean but you have a guy like kurosawa who he writes edits i mean he does edit all of his own shit right and directs so he's doing a lot more than the average director um but he's he's doing it because that's just how his process works but he's also using the same art director's the same composers, the same cinematographers, the same crew, even. Um, so it seems like even if he ha- does have like a shift in style, like I, I feel like any director can have multiple styles. Um, but as far as them bringing like a, spe- a specific style, a specific style to that movie, like I, I think that is true i mean that you kind of have to especially if you're doing all this like uh, above the line work like you, you have to bring your own kind of vision to it and i feel like he totally does that and and he has a huge crew that knows exactly how to work with him and and i think that is kind of what sets him like sets him up to be someone who's m- more of an auteur than other directors because he has this entire regimen of, of people who who uh, 
you know, do his stuff. But I, you know, I wouldn't call him an auteur, <laughs> but I would say that he was a very powerful director who had uh, really particular, really particular visions, whether it's in the samurai genre or in the, uh, what would the gangster uh, genre? Like for me, when I, like when Yojimbo opens and stuff, like, as soon as that the music's playing and he's walking down through you know the the, the land and stuff and, and when that my one of my favorite parts when the dog comes out and he got, he's got the hand in the in the dog's mouth yep. to me that just screams so Kurosawa not just because of the visual but the feeling that you get from it because and like it, I don't I don't know how to explain this but for me like I've probably mentioned before when I watch movies I don't care about character I don't care about plot. I, th- I just think about mood, atmosphere, and Kurosawa has a very particular mood that I've noticed throughout his films, whether it's the gangster mm-hmm. stuff or the samurai stuff, and when I see that dog with the hand in its mouth, it just screams Kurosawa to me. And again, that might actually steer towards what we were talking about earlier about the style and not so much being an auteur, but for me, it, it, with Kurosawa, it's hard for me to differentiate sometimes because... Like what you were saying earlier, Keith, he's closer to Kubrick to me in the sense Definitely. that everything is so thought out mm-hmm. that when I see that dog running toward, you know, you know, with the with the with the hand in its mouth, not only is it telling me that this town that he's walking into is not unlike any other town, you know, mm-hmm. but it's also setting up possible foreshadowing. It's setting up the the what possibly the rest of the film is going to be visually it's so thought out it sets that, the mood for the town yeah by mm-hmm. just that visual alone and it, it just to me it just it's brilliant and and it screams kurosawa and that's why i tend to think like not to be against like jacob here but i consider it like that he's an auteur because he brought that one little element. It, that that scene is so short in the movie. Um, <laughs> it, it's so short in the movie, but it it, it sets up the whole fucking movie. Which like, is it's funny be, that you say that because I was. You want, uh, you want that to fight Byron? <laughs> <laughs> I'll come up there. Don't think I will, man. Do it. Do it. No, it's funny you bring that up because uh, I. When I was doing my research, that specific shot came up, and initially, when he was uh, planning that shot, I can't remember who he delegated the task to. If it was the, I think it was the production designer guy, but he was basically like, "We need an image that's going to essentially speak volumes about the town, uh, without saying anything about the town specifically." And the <clears throat> production designer basically had all his ideas shot down, and the Kurosawa was the one to come up with that idea. See, like, and I, that's awesome. I think it's just awesome. I mean, because like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but, but to me, that's such a move. It's such a director's move, and it's not, it's not because he directed the dog with a hand in its mouth. It's because he came up with the whole idea mm-hmm. and he put it in this film, which then all of a sudden it doesn't just become a samurai movie. It becomes a film that every little detail is is there because Kurosawa wanted it to be because if he shot down all the other ideas that these other guys have mentioned uh, to bring this then you know that everything else is the way he wanted it yeah exactly so then it becomes his film I think even though we had people collaborate I mean obviously he couldn't do the whole film by himself but 
and I don't know if the people are actually serving him or not because I don't know what his the atmosphere is like on his set. But I, I just to interject, I would say that due to the cultural way that Japanese just people say, operate, yep. I would say that they were definitely probably serving him more so than yeah. American films. Just because Japanese people like they like Japanese pilots are known to crash airplanes more often because the pilot is in charge and the co the co pilot does isn't really allowed to say when something's wrong. You know what I mean? So there was a you know something that was happening in like the eighties or something. Uh, they had like Japanese pilots go train over with Americans in order to teach them this like different culture of like challenging the authorities you know what i mean so you know i i would say yeah for sure that he had this kind of power um over like so like for me i don't know i'm not I, i don't know much about japanese culture but like is it are they serving him because of the culture or are they also are they also doing that and serving him artistically I yeah, definitely both. both. Yeah. both? Okay, definitely cool, both. cool. I would I mean, argue. I don't know, but I would In Japanese I would culture, it's very much like whoever's in charge or whoever is your elder, like the utmost respect is cool. given to them, like without question. You Sweet. Know, like, it, it, so especially as Kurosawa's name grew and as, as, as he got older, I mean, there's definitely certain different levels or reasons why people were serving, and it's definitely culturally ingrained as part of it, for sure. So then would, I mean, because of this, would this mean that Kurosawa, through just culturally, be he's more of an auteur than, say, maybe I was other actually, directors? I was going to ask, I was going to... Because that's something that we didn't touch upon in the previous, you know, conversation we were talking about as auteurs. I mean, I brought up that cultural wave, but that's completely different because that's mm-hmm. a cultural wave that that viewers <laughs> see something and then it becomes culture instead of there's cultural already culture already there that then influences the art, mm-hmm. which is also a whole other thing. That's that. Wow. The, yeah, like, I, was, it I was thinking so about that. Insane. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because it, it, it. I would almost say that in auteur theory in Japan, Japanese culture, like it, it's almost more prominent, or irre- right. irrelevant, or yeah, like yeah, yeah. Eas- more easily explained and more obvious. Gosh, because that's of that. so yeah. interesting. I mean, yeah. and that is fascinating. Not to say because Americans are. You know they're they're subservient to people yeah. that they respect and their yeah. bosses look at, and, look and at elders the and stuff like prequels. that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're all people serving one yeah. guy, man. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's not like Americans are just fuck all to everyone, right? Yeah. But it's like, yeah, in in Asian culture specifically, not just Japanese, but in Asian culture, like, yeah, it's very much like if your elder says to do something within reason, you will do it. You know what I mean? It's just not you don't just you don't say i mean just look at the fact that they have to like you know they bow i mean you they see it in the ojimbo because it, it pulls from the older style of of uh japanese respect and stuff but like the fact that they always have to bow to someone you always want to be lower when you get into a room it's always you're very down you're hunched you're you're addressed when the person wants to address you you know you sit where you sit in the room is different depending on who you are and your status like you know it's just it's all about the hierarchy. It's so interesting because, like, you know, like, like A Fistful of Dollars, which is, you know, Italian, very Italian, but even shot in Spain, 
like from what I remember like reading about like the production history of that film, you know, I, I want to say, you know, it wasn't uncommon for crew members to just leave. Like, like, oh, I'm not liking how the director is is, is mm-hmm. um, treating right. the crew or whatever. Yeah. And, like, and they and they were just like, oh, they walk okay, off. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and just walk off. Like, yeah. culturally, completely different than what yep. I mean Kurosawa is. And I'm not saying that that happened on any of Leone's films, but I'm I'm sure maybe two, uh, maybe a couple did. I'm not sure, but like the def- the de- the culture there is definitely different. Where you know, I'm sure Leone probably had more. He had to keep that in the back of his mind when he was directing A Fistful of Dollars, whereas Kurosawa knew probably the control that he had and, and what, he yeah. could, what, mm-hmm. what he could do with it. And I'd also like to point out, too, like, <clears throat> in Japanese culture, it's, it's a little, I think, a little more stereotypical in Japanese culture, but this idea of honor and never wanting to disgrace yourself or someone else. So, like, you know, if you're tasked with with working on a movie for someone then you don't want to disgrace some you don't want to disgrace yourself by leaving you also don't want to disgrace them by failing or not trying your hardest either right so right. that's why there's kind of this culture of like of overworking in Japan and stuff like that where the people especially in like the business culture are way overworked and overstressed because of this mm-hmm. this desire to always want to please and succeed and, and you know and that's why it, the stereotype of the samurai committing suicide and, and honor and there's a word for ritual suicide because you've dishonored you know right so it, it's it's that prevalent that there's an actual word for it in their language you know so I think that definitely makes Kurosawa more than most people I think an auteur if you're going to go down the route of saying someone's an auteur you know yeah no yeah I, I completely agree I think it's uh, may, maybe the maybe I'm theorizing because I, I usually do this about my personality where maybe my idea of auteur is kind of shaped by how the culture like American culture is set up around me you know what I mean like like when I go to a set and I see how it's run or when I'm running a set, it's very like more it's it's collaborative, but it's sometimes it's collaborative, even though the director thinks that it's not, you know what I mean? Like sometimes the things are decisions are being made, you know, like a, um, without the director. And sometimes that just gets in the movie, but uh, with the Japanese Kurosawa movies like I I feel like you're right I I think there's there's something about how that culture is set up that might make it more auteur than even Shane Carruth you know what I mean because it's he's kind of doing all of it and everyone's so serving you know like they're so serving Carruth is just doing what he's doing but everybody has to wait for him, and he, so he, yeah, he, he has to do it all himself. Whereas if, you know, making all those decisions by himself, whereas Kurosawa just all he has to do is just make the decisions, and then they're all, then they're just done. Yeah, and you that's, know, like, that's the bonus of working with the same crew over and over again because yeah. they get it, they get the how you operate. And, yeah, yeah. Huh. Interesting. <clears throat> um, this is an idea I actually meant to bring up a little bit earlier. Um, and the fact that you say like 
how directors kind of don't see themselves as collaborators necessarily. Uh, I guess this kind of informs it, but this is an interesting just little side thought. Uh, in the in the same book, The Film Experience I was reading, uh, they have this paragraph that basically, in summary, is basically says that uh, directors, you could imply savvy directors or exploitative directors will actually use their heritage or skin color in combination with authorship as leverage. Say that again? Say it again? So the idea is, uh, and this is another uh, kind of in support of this idea of there being a force, like auteur as a force that pushes things. Basically what they're saying is that uh, some filmmakers with either their heritage and or skin color in combination with this idea of being an uh, an author of a film or having the power you know what I mean by being a powerful director in a film will actually use those things as leverage so so to like say you had um, a black director you know or a black showrunner trying to go make empire like that 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 big show that that hit show that that is on yes what you're saying is the showrunner will use like basically say i'm black so therefore i know how to direct this and use that to get power over the studio is that is that what you're saying well as as a power or no not to get power over the studio but to be the one to like i should do this show because I'm black. You know what I mean? Or oh. like, like, so the example that they have here, there's those two examples. One is, um, so this I'm quoting out of the book. It says Spike Lee asserted that as an African American filmmaker, he was more qualified to make the biographical film Malcolm X than a white director would have been. So he's yeah, using his fine. cultural upbringing, <laughs> no but as well as his, 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 background as, as a director who's already made movies a certain style of movies so he's essentially leveraging those two things to make to be the one to make that movie yeah, yeah that's like, fascinating because straight out of compton was had a whole lot of white people working on it you know what i mean yet that movie's now in the national film registry or mm-hmm. uh, yeah i think it just it joined is, in yeah. this year because of its cultural relevance yeah, because so it, cause it was get both it, sides. Because yeah. it was directed by an African American guy, though. Oh, was it? Yeah, he oh, he directed okay, like Friday. He he directed like Friday and and uh, um, oh, some other. Movies. He worked on stuff with Ice Cube. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But I guess yeah. I, I guess the writers. I think maybe I'm thinking of the right. All the writers oh, were yeah. were white women. But I mean, it's, I think it's like interesting though, because like yeah, I mean like a South American director couldn't like. Or a South American showrunner couldn't like do Downton Abbey. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Because it's yeah. such a particular yeah. British. Because they thing. don't get it. Like they don't yeah. get the culture of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean, they, I, they I could do it, but it that. wouldn't maybe be as authentic, or mm-hmm. or, or yeah. you know, the detail might not be no. there. <laughs> and what's saying... cool about that is if when you do mix those things up, you get things like spaghetti westerns. You, you know, mm-hmm. right, you get things right, like right, right. these Italian guys who have no idea what Western society is like. Yet they're making this movie and it's awesome. Like and they're it's better. super cool. And they're better. <laughs> yeah. Because so sometimes lo- writing what yeah. you oh, don't know or or directing what you don't know is a good thing. And, or yeah, you totally. You know, it might stir some controversy, but it, you know, 
Sometimes I it's mean, better. Yeah. I mean, but with like spaghetti. Like, it can also go the opposite. You know what I mean? I feel like oh, it's a for risk. Sure. Yeah, it's risky. Yeah, because it's funny because, like, Leone was so in love with the 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 mythicism or the I guess yeah the mythicism and the the that the American Western in you know in cinema brought that he he did all that research of true American West and like you had photographs of true like real life American towns and he didn't have photographs of American movie sets he had photographs of real American towns and brought it to his production designers and then they just recreated they would literally recreate like the same signs with the same mm-hmm, names yeah. as real barbershops and real saloons so they had the authenticity and when I watch like spaghetti westerns for me a lot of the time visually they're to me way more like <laughs> western than the American western where everything's yeah. kind of clean and, and there's a lot of blues and reds whereas like spaghetti westerns things are just fucking grimy dirty yeah, and like, like just way yeah. way better because you know that in real life that's what they were they were just gross you know you got the tobacco stains on the on the you know the floor and yeah. the the whores aren't nice and pretty they're all you know stained and you know gnarly <laughs> teeth and shit you know hopefully normal <laughs> Stains, yeah, like dirt yeah. stains. Um, <laughs> no, no, both. Well, yeah, a, good, a solid mix. I want all, all three: urine, yeah. poop, oh, no, four, Whoa. dirt, semen, everything. <laughs> oh my god, Byron! <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you say anything like that. Before. That was awesome. What? Re- really, dude? You're like the cleanest bro ever, dude. Wait, no way, really? Nah, I'm totally fucking with you. <laughs> I was like, what? How am I? <laughs> no, I'm surprised you said semen. I thought you'd go. Well, for it's one of those words. things. Like, I guess, like the more, yeah, the more you know me, or the more like you just hang out with me, probably like the more like fucked up my mind because the more <laughs> it comes apparent that my mind is really fucked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I try and rein it in. You know, right? No, you've done a pretty good job until now. I think so. <laughs> well, so, yeah, if I unfriend you on Facebook, don't take it personally. Yeah, more to come. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh kind of circling back to what i was saying though just just to give a other side of the coin and not kind of feel like we're picking on um spike lee or anything it says director steven spielberg claimed his jewish heritage with his film about the holocaust schindler's list and used his prominence and that of the film to establish the survivors of the show visual history foundation so sure. when i say leveraging something i'm not saying it in a negative way i'm not saying they're exploiting i mean yes that's also possible but in general, I think it's interesting that whether O'Tour exists, directors kind of like that it does because it can kind of leverage certain yeah. things, you know? Yeah. I'm I sure that's so how Nolan does it when he when he walks into a boardroom and walks out with $200 million for an original concept, you know? like Yeah. He says, you, I'm British. And then they give him money. <laughs> British. <laughs> Americans love British people, dude. They're the best. It's kind of true, though. It is true. Like, oh, so, like, my... I, I'm going to bring up my family for a second, but uh, my sister is dating this guy. Long, long-term dating. His name's David. He's totally awesome. He's lovely. He's a totally great dude. Um, he's from Manchester. And uh, we'll just be, like, sitting at family events, and I'll just kind of... I'll just be hanging out like nothing's going on. I'll look across the room and people 
are listening to what David is saying from across the room. And it's just because <laughs> he sounds so great. And it's totally, <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. Like, my whole family's like, wow, David's really smart. And, like, he's, I mean, I'm trying to think about what he's saying. And he's he's just talking, you know? It's just, he's not trying to sound smart. You know what I mean? So it's just, well, like, that's why crazy. I, that's why nature documentaries love to use British narrators because it, it gives you this, especially to Americans, it gives them the sense of, like, authority about what they're talking about, you know? Right, right. And so, it's also, like, why we love, like, British villains because no one really – no one is really scared of, like, villains that aren't intelligent. But mm-hmm. when you have, like, a British villain, they kind of – you know, it's the stereotype is that they're, you know, intelligent villains. So, yeah, when, yeah. when you know, it's like, oh, you don't fuck with them because, you know, not only are they – bad guys but they're also smart and they know how to work it you know <laughs> yeah exactly and they just sound smart like they don't yeah, even yeah. need to be written that smart i don't th- i mean obviously no they do. yeah but i you know just having the voice in there sometimes is is passable not not for me i don't think but maybe it is <laughs> i don't know i listen to david so i don't just you know i'm guilty <laughs> <laughs> well there's a, a couple of other ideas i want to bring up but uh since we're closing in on two and a half hours i want to just push into film number two real quick yep so that we make sure we cover it and then the rest of the stuff that we usually do um so second film for this week is wes anderson's moonrise kingdom made in 2012 the film stars jared gilman kara hayward bruce willis edward norton bill murray francis mcdormand tilda swinton and many others kind of his go-to cast as we were saying you know you find your people and you stick with them uh, and actually, this was the first one, I think, to not have Owen Wilson involved. Um, and then it, it comes back around because he, he's in Grand Budapest. So Not even a as a, a writer? Because I thought Owen Wilson wrote on... Entirely not involved, yeah. Whoa. It was Roman Roman Coppola uh, was the co-writer for Moonrise Kingdom. So, let's see. It was written by Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola. It was directed by Wes Anderson, shot by Robert Yaman, and edited by Andrew Weisblum. Music was by Alexander Dupla. Production design was by Adam Stockhausen, and costumes were designed by Cassia Walika Maimone? Maimone? Something along those lines. Um, But some of those names should be familiar from the Grand Budapest discussion because they are the same people uh, that worked on Grand Budapest. Uh, So it was filmed in various locations around Rhode Island, but entirely in Rhode Island, which is also an uncommon place to film. So it's interesting that they chose that. Uh, it had an estimated budget of about $16 million, you know, likely more than that. And indoor sets were constructed to accommodate the movement of the camera. Uh, so this kind of harkens back to rope and how the set and everything about that movie was designed for the camera. Wes Anderson's style has become so like necessary to his own filmmaking like to himself that like they had to build around how it moves so that it can move up the house through the floors and through the house and you know back and forth and left and right and whatnot so they were actually constructed to accommodate the camera um and even on location sets were kind of reconstructed for the camera so that the campsites that they shoot at were real but were reconstructed to make sure that the cam the correct you know foreground background middle ground and kind of that set look that he has and that flat 
look, you know, we're like, even, I mean, you can tell, like, when they're doing the kind of, like, uh, Last Supper style, when they're all sitting mm-hmm. on the same side of the table, you know, how, how ridiculous that actually is. But yeah. it's just to accommodate that style of camera and that to be able to shoot it, because it all happens in, like, one shot, that scene there. So it's like, he wants to shoot it from that right there. And that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. So everything has to accommodate that. And it's all, in this movie particularly, it's all symmetry. Like, this movie really, yep. I say, I think more so than any other Wes Anderson movie I've seen, it, it really goes for, I, I guess Grand Budapest kind of does symmetry too, but I, I I see it more in this film than I this do. This one's in, way more symmetrical, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like very evenly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let's see. Oh, yeah, so... One of the examples, excuse me. One of the examples I have also is the uh, four. There was a four hundred foot fence line that was constructed for the scene where the kids tried to convince cousin Ben to help them. So it, the the camera dollies four hundred feet to the right along this fence line that was constructed specifically to have that shot, and. Uh, you can see like you know they're walking along the fence line and they're talking and whatnot and then you can see the camp all the activities in the camp happening in the background so that's one of those interesting things that the he knew that they wanted the camera to move that way and you know he kind of you kind of need something there like it would have been looked weirder i think if they were just trooping along in front of the camera so it kind of gave the sense of depth and also kind of just it, it made it feel right so that's what i'm saying with, with things being constructed for his cameras um so yeah that's that's that spiel um and you know i kind of wanted to ask but we already kind of covered it like why are we talking about wes anderson as no tour like why has he come up again you know this is i mean two episodes ago is when we talked about grand budapest so it's pretty soon to have him reappear uh but i think kind of answering the question earlier is like when you think of when I at least when I think about a no tour I think Wes Anderson kind of pops up almost immediately just because of the distinctive visual style it makes it easy to like apply that definition to him yeah you know? it's it's easy to see how his movies are different than any other movie really like I don't think I've really seen I mean, I've seen movies that try to mimic it, but not in a successful way. But his use of miniatures, you know, miniature sets and that are very telling that they're miniatures, like it's a stylistic choice. His symmetry, it has hit the the kids acting like adults and the adults acting like kids. It has um, the the soundtrack, you know, it's it's all in this movie. It feels the most Wes Anderson of all, all the Wes Anderson movies I've seen, I think. I haven't seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, though, so I couldn't talk about that one. But, but yeah, I mean, I think this movie is easily, like, the most Wes Anderson-y of, 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 of almost all the movies that he's made. What do you guys... Do you guys think that's true? I would... Yeah, I would say... Yeah, if... Okay, if you were to not factor in Grand Budapest... Because this this it went this movie and then Grand Budapest. Right. I would say that yeah, this is probably probably the pinnacle of his Wes Anderson ness. Um, and Grand Budapest, I think, 
really rides the coattails of that too especially i think he almost takes it i almost want to say more of an extreme with making sure he doesn't break his own conventions because there's a couple of shots in moonrise where i think he kind of breaks his convention a little bit what, uh, what shots i feel like there's some like kind of older shoulder or more like reverse stuff i think like the traditional yeah like right. single yeah. single master setup exactly yeah exactly so uh, there's not many um and i think there's a few there's a few oh yeah yeah there's a few when the kids are walking around the forest where instead of having their movement center screen it's like bottom bottom corner you know what i mean so it's not the symmetrical shots that he, um, that you yeah. usually get with that right um and actually, to add, to add to the whole symmetrical thing, too, like, he's really playing that up in this one because of the way he does the phone calls, where when Bruce mm-hmm. Willis calls someone, it's literally split down the middle, and then they basically look like they're sitting in the same room, you know, mm-hmm. to get that very symmetrical look. And then you get that ridiculous yellow house with the yellow phone and the yellow appliances, like, yeah. totally ridiculous yeah. set that he had for totally, that which no is one hilarious. would ever own any of that but but it totally works you know yeah, I mean? exactly that's his weird that's his whimsy man that's his auteur yeah that's why he's an auteur right um, no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean I don't know. Most of, actually, most of my notes and discussion were centered around Yojimbo, um, and I think we took we kind of took a huge whack at O two or three right off the bat. So a lot of the stuff that I had planned, we already kind of talked about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but same. I think I think yeah, I think what you said earlier. If you go down the list of things, checking it off, I think his themes, his visuals, the people he works with, the the, the music for sure, the music the whimsy style mixed in with like you know adult things that are happening you know like i mean adultery is a thing that's happening alcoholism bill murray's an alcoholic mm-hmm. who basically ignores his kids it's not the um, first time he's been an alcoholic in a wes anderson movie life aquatic um uh fuck rushmore oh rushmore oh okay yeah. um yeah, so, like, this is really, like, it's, like, I mean, troubled children, children running away, adoption. I mean, my girlfriend pointed this out, too. Like, the main character, uh, is it Sam? I think his name is Sam in the movie. He's totally on the spectrum. Like, so you have a main, on the, on the autistic spectrum. Oh, sure. Like, he's totally got the, like, signs of it. So, like, here you are with this main character where they don't even like talk about it but he just is you know and but it's like really clear so like you know mm-hmm. you have that's kind of a pretty big theme you know like the only other the whole t like the only other thing i can think of that does that is a uh, parenthood or uh the tv series parenthood or whatever where yeah, the kid where the kid what the main kind of couple their kid has like pretty severe autism yeah like you know it's not something that gets tackled and then here it they, is. Just they tackle it in that. In, the, in that. No, show. they do. They but do. It's like right, right. way no. later. Like after. That, you, you, yeah. I, I well, that's what saying. I mean. Like it. The, that show tackles it because it's part of the story. But what I'm saying is, 99 percent of media does not touch it at all. But yeah, right. here it is, and it's just there. You know what I mean? Like that's a pretty big thing to just have in there, and then 
to play out and then and then have the main character you know and then to have the main character be accepted at the end too like that's a pretty big right pretty big arc uh, yeah that's not a it's not a common thing to throw in like a gay character or a uh a character with some sort of mental um disability Exactly. And, and not like hang on it for something you know what I mean or hang mm-hmm. on it as a beat in the story um, I think we're seeing more of like gay characters that are just gay you know what I mean I think we're seeing a lot more of that but normally anytime you make a choice like that like people want to hang a lantern on it and I think honestly I think it's because we have so many white male directors and white male screenwriters that sort of like if you're white and male that is the default unfortunately so if you make a choice to make someone a woman or if you make a choice to make them black or any anything uh it it becomes the not default and it's a problem i think uh but so when filmmakers do something like this it makes me really appreciate them a little bit more because they're sort of they're kind of using the faults that kind of appear in the studio system and like using it in a really artistic way. And I, I, I like that. That's a thing for me. Like, yeah, I don't know if this is quite the same topic, but like, I guess looking at Moonrise Kingdom and what you're talking about, like the different characters, I think that it is something that makes him an auteur is the fact that, he like throughout his films he has these like kind of troubled characters that are kind of unique but he doesn't hang on that like like with um the royal tenenbaums you know you like you have depression you have characters that are like you know really depressed and you have um uh you know in, in life aquatic you know willem dafoe's character who's very quirky you know very different um but yet it doesn't hang on any of that and it is just that's what the character is and Mm -hmm. you either accept it or you don't accept it um or some people may not even pick up on it it's just that's just the character they don't really think anything of it either Mm -hmm. but then when you when you but when you really sit down and think about it then you could be like wait a minute is that character you know this you know and then it it can really inform the rest of the story you're like oh shit like (laughs) damn Wes Anderson was doing something there and I didn't even really realize it right and he's done that throughout all of his films and that ties in with what like you guys were saying earlier about you know the adults that are children and the children that are adults and it's and because he messes it up like that it it makes things just interesting and then it does something that I think for me makes him more an auteur other than his visual stuff because it's i mean for me yeah like wes anderson i mean the first thing that comes to mind is is visuals but i think what makes him for me like more of an auteur is not only his visuals but the fact that he 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 does things that are similar thematically and character wise and and stuff like that um which is which is similar to like with what we were talking about with kurosawa is that every with kurosawa everything is so thought out and i think the same thing is kind of like that with Wes Anderson except in just a completely different way where mm-hmm. his is thought out but in a in a in a way where it's more the stuff that's important to him necessarily isn't the same things that are important to Kurosawa. I don't know. No, it's I kinda... think I think you're right. I think it's super interesting. And I, I this just kind of dawned on me. I think when when I when I say something like the, it feels very thought out or intentional what what i think i'm trying to say is it feels like they're doing something different than what 
is normal. You know what right. I mean? Right. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like they you, they could just shoot the scene with a master shot of the two people and an over the shoulder on each side. They could just do it that way for the entire movie if they wanted to. You know, and I you, you know that's a way to do it. But one thing that makes certain directors so unique and so stylistic is when they continue to shoot things in an entirely different way in a way that no one else is really doing it and i think that is a, one of the big things that wes anderson brings to the table is like where he's putting the camera and how he's using the camera to tell the story and really i think that's where if if we are going to talk about auteurs and all that stupid shit but that that is like one thing that a really good director will bring to the table like putting cameras in unique spots and using or using sound or using something in a way that is entirely different than what you'd expect out of like a traditional studio movie because like for me like anderson sometimes has like the most simple camera setups i've ever seen in a movie it's so simple. However, it's different because of like the production design, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then it's like, but it, because of the, that combination of the simplicity of the shot and the production design, it's like, oh shit, that's totally Anderson, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting yeah. because obviously he didn't have complete control over the production design. I mean, obviously it was his idea, but he didn't, he wasn't the one necessarily like setting it all up. So whether or not that person was actually serving his vision or not, I mean, I have no idea, but, but you know, probably, yeah, you know, for prob- the most part. Yeah, prob- probably, but, yeah. but, like, uh, I don't know. It's interesting because, like, not only does he do super unique stuff, but he also makes things so simple that it becomes unique. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that no, makes I... any sense, which is kind of like Kurosawa with how he's using an influence that he, that's been influenced, but then he, but in turn, he influences the genre. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. He like bring, I, bring, brings his own style to it, his own flavor. Right. You know? What yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. Well, let's open it up to opinions about both these films. <laughs> oh, about the films. I was, was going to say we've been talking opinions this entire time. <laughs> no, just, <laughs> just kind of yeah. reviews or opinions about the two movies. Um, sure. Wants to start? I can start. I don't care. Do it. All right. Yojimbo's amazing. Six out of five, must watch. Crank by, it up to eleven. By anyone, <laughs> I mean realistically. Okay, if you're a filmmaker, then there's no excuse. You have to watch it. Like, there's just nothing. I don't care if you don't. I don't care if you hate foreign movies or you hate samurai films or whatever. Or you black just, and white. Or black and white. Like, you have to watch it. I, there's just no way around it. Um, it's too important. And then his filmmaking in that movie is just too masterful to pass up. Uh, it's too like, good. It, it really, no, it really is. It's, it's, it's really like, good. if you want a masterclass on how to have engaging characters, a good set and, and understanding how to frame things in the foreground, middle ground and background and how to play characters against each other within a frame. I mean, you can't, I mean, this guy, it has it all. It really does. And then the way the plot plays out and then, you know, it's got a fairly traditional plotting where everything kind of ramps up and, and the the danger gets more, is more extreme as you go. And then also the character gets, like, the character of, of, of his name is actually, I think he calls himself Sanjuro in the movie, uh, 
he's like this snarky, smart ass guy, and then he gets his kind of comeuppance where you know he gets beaten up and he loses his sword and he loses everything and and has to kind of hide, you know. So he gets this kind of flip on his head, and then he kind of comes to some sort of understanding about how to a degree right he kind of just walks away but him and the old man kind of become friends to a degree as much as they could you know and there's like a change right there's an obvious change from the beginning even if it's kind of like subtle so like you, you can't i mean study the movie in whatever way you want to study it and you it's just it's masterful for sure uh, and then uh, moonrise kingdom is great totally great totally entertaining seen it a couple times now um, I mean, you can learn a lot from Wes Anderson, too. And like we were saying with everything, like his whole, especially with the production design and understanding care how to get people to react without having the camera force reactions and force, you know, because that's, that's the thing with with uh, a shot, reverse shot and editing. You're forcing uh, like uh, emphasis on certain lines or emphasis on reactions whereas if you just let a scene play out without cuts it's all about more emoting from the actors you know so there's definitely a lot to learn from him in terms of how to get how to play actors with each other and especially like how to direct kids because that in and of itself is a skill you know and how to cast people correctly for sure because even though he uses the same actors the fact that he can cast them in these different roles in the right place is also pretty impressive mm-hmm. and um, and that also the writing the characters for those people too which yeah. kind of goes in line with the casting he kind of knows how to write these characters really well and for these actors too totally totally so yeah what do you guys think um, I guess, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, I love Yojimbo. I've seen it a couple times. Um, fantastic movie, like you said, super masterful. I mean, it's one of those ones that, I mean, I think, yeah, if you're really into film, you kind of have to see it. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most influential films of of all time I really think you know um, I actually I'm almost frustrated by the fact that it's like I know certain film studies courses in school teach it obviously but I, I would almost expect it to be more widespread and almost a little disappointed that it's not like all the classes I took that we didn't even touch you know, unless you took Japanese film specifically we didn't even touch it isn't, isn't Seven Samurai considered to be his like like magnum um, opus yeah magnum opus yeah yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I I want to say though, Yojimbo has elements that are more masterful than Seven Samurai. You know what I mean? I mean? Seven Samurai is like an epic. You know yeah. what I mean? It's Got it's it. spread out. It's it's three hours over a little over three hours long with an actual intermission, so it's actually two parts. But like, it's a different. It's masterful, but it's different. Right. You know what it's I mean? Where as, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think Yojimbo is a more accessible tool for learning because yeah, it's I mean? more contained and, and, and yeah. you can actually see him this kind of sounds weird to say but you almost can kind of see him work yeah you can see him work a little bit more but i think that's maybe why i think that yojembo might be more like if you're a film student you you know you might want to check it out before you see the seven samurai but yeah i mean and then like moonrise kingdom um i i really like that movie um i've seen it again you know a couple times 
it's not my favorite Wes Anderson by f- uh, film by far. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt, but also Seven Samurai is, I think, four by three and black and white, so it's also yeah, harder. It's, it can be harder to watch, right. obviously. Yeah, because this is wide. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry. Oh, no, that's all good. Um, but, yeah, like, again, Lunar's Kingdom, I mean, I like it. Uh, not my favorite Wes Anderson film, and it's not, at least to me, like anything like super special when it comes to just like film in general but it's the per- it's one of the perfect examples of like what we could be talking about as in a tour you know so mm-hmm. that that's i you know i think that's why we chose it um for and it's, it's just it's like one of those movies that's like i don't know what to watch you know right right okay, it's, let's it's, throw that on or yeah, like and it's it's good family fun it's you can watch it in groups or alone, you can, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the film. It's just not like my personal favorite of Wes Anderson's, you know. But um, it's still, you know, it's still a great film. So yeah, overall, I mean, I think someone's head it, needed to get chopped off, and then it would have been perfect, five stars. It would have been, yeah. it would have <laughs> amped it up a little bit enough. more. Yeah, yeah, it would have amped it up more, more. Come for sure. <laughs> <and come. laughs> Which oh, I think man. is why I like Grand, Bu- uh, Grand Budapest a little you know, more, is because it is a little bit more dark, you yeah, know? And it's raunchy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like raunchy, yeah. Yeah, like it's, it's definitely... It's, this, it's, it's so Wes Anderson, but yet it's a little different because he plays with is you know the 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 yeah the darker stuff um more which is maybe why i like it more and that's just a, that's just like a personal opinion but out of the two films i mean i think yo jimbo would be the one that i would always go to you know what i mean um for yeah like a film that would be like what do you want to watch today yo jimbo or moonrise kingdom i would i think always pick yo jimbo cuz there's i think there's always something that i would get out of it something yeah. we should do at the end of this is say which movie if we had to pick between the two movies we, we should do that at the end of each episode I think that's kind of fun you know like yeah that's cool pick, picking one I think that'd be kind of okay so um, you guys are gonna hate me but uh, yo Jimbo <laughs> what a joke you gave what? it four and a half stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah, You're lying, suck. I, I actually loved it. Uh, yeah, clearly. Super good. Uh, <laughs> love the... Uh, just every aspect of it. You know, it just draws you in right away. And uh, you, just, you just... You know, good movies, like... You, you can tell when a good movie, like, does something really well. Like, the film... Oh, like, the filmmaking is really good. But I didn't really connect with it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of people, like, can tell... A lot of audiences when a film is like doing a good job even if they don't connect with it this movie did both of those things for me so i've really connected with the story and the whole idea of what he's fighting for and his struggle as a character um and just how he kind of shifts and goes back and forth between each of the um families you know and what's actually funny is i had just seen a fistful of dollars like like two months ago uh, before I watched it, and um, for the first time, for the first time, yeah. Because oh I, no I way, no way. Yeah, so I was like, this is exactly like that Clint Eastwood movie I watched the other time. And I looked it up, and it was like, oh yeah, this is exactly like Fistful of Dollars. And I'm not that familiar with spaghetti westerns or westerns in general. Um, and so I was like, what? Like how this is like the same thing? So then that's when I found out there was this whole like court case, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting that these are like the same. So I just totally had my like mind blown when I was watching Yojimbo, um, because it 
is literally, <laughs> it is literally the same. Like no, even, he literally took shot like direct shots yeah, out like of Yojimbo like and like put them in. Yeah. yeah, and the whole thing with the coffin maker that mm-hmm. joke's in there too. Yeah, just everything is just you know, it, it's it's more action. You know, it's a more action-based movie. Uh, not Yojimbo, but the other one. You know, it's more action-packed. There's a lot more fighting and stuff. But I, you know, Yojimbo is just better in my opinion. I just I connected with it a lot more. Um, however, however, I am such a sucker for coming-of-age movies. Period. Like I just, I love coming-of-age stories. So anything coming-of-age, I'm just like immediately I just get sucked into and love. So if I'm gonna have to pick. A movie. It's whole lot be of, a whole lot of oh, coming and about. sucking talk I'm hearing <laughs> from you right now. <laughs> when I say coming of age, I mean I mean children. Not uh, not what Byron thinks coming of age means. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I love Moonrise Kingdom. And it was actually one of the first movies I watched that I could identify as a Wes Anderson film. So it was, you know, I had seen Bottle Rocket and uh, The Squid and the Whale and Rushmore before, but I hadn't really, like, got a sense of... Because I, I, I hadn't seen Darjeeling, I hadn't seen Fantastic, I hadn't seen uh, Steve Zuzo, or or the Royal Tenenbaum. So, like, really, I had no idea what his style was. And Moonrise Kingdom is kind of the movie where I started, uh, like, I got it. I was like, oh, okay, this is who this... This is it. Like, this is the Wes Anderson that people are talking about you know what i mean yeah, um, yeah i would say that like this movie is a good starting point you know yeah, what i'm mean? like yeah, for oh, sure. totally totally yeah yeah, yeah great yeah. starting point um but it's also coming of age so i just can't turn that can't turn down a coming of age movie it's just who i am and so also, like, i'm gonna pick that one over yo jim <laughs> cool. like a, a lot of anderson films are rated r actually like life aquatic is r royal tenenbaums is r and budapest is r budapest is R. This um, one's PG thirteen. Might R. even be PG. Yeah, so like And Rushmore. Moonrise Kingdom is definitely one that's more accessible. So for either younger audiences or audiences that may not want to watch I don't know, R rated movies, even though they're fil- they're they're really not that R rated. They're definitely not hard hard they're they're not, not hard, hard R's no. at all. Right. Um, right. They're they're like rated R for like maybe one thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think yeah, in a way for the little of... bit of cum they had in the. <laughs> you know, it's it is <laughs> usually sex. Face. It is usually sex related. So yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah, true. Like I don't know. It's it's funny, but it wasn't. Or, yeah, Moonrise Kingdom I think would be the perfect one to start. Um, that or a Fantastic Mr. Fox. But if you're talking live action, then definitely Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, sure. a lot of people just can't stand stop motion too. Like oh, they man, just my, can't do it. I think it's you my favorite. Me, but I love stop motion, man. Yeah, stop I think. Oh, man, Fantastic Mr. Fox I think is my favorite Anderson film. I mean, it's just oh, I, I gotta it. watch it. Oh, I love it, it, dude. I think you'll really like it because it's actually kind of a. <laughs> coming of age uh, story too. Nice. <laughs> but that was but very it, on the nose, if you but, know what I mean. But with uh, with foxes, <laughs> and not and not like foxes, like oh, like she's a fox, but like literal foxes. Are you, are you trying to <laughs> announce that you're a furry? What are they called? Furries? Uh, no, no. <laughs> this is uh, coming out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is coming out right now. I'm wearing ears, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know that whole furry thing. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, interesting. Not, I'm not. 
I'm not into it, but that is an interesting I, Dude, I'm thing. into the idea of learning about it, but they're so closed right. off. It, yeah, if anyone wants some weird shit going on, look up furries, you know, and look up that whole culture. It's people who dress up in basically in animal costumes like all the time and go to conventions and there's even like a weird sub category of furries where like people get sexual so they do oh, like totally yeah yeah really like they have have sex while being like a critter of some kind it's terribly fascinating and freaky so if you, if you want if you want a fun you know if you want some Tuesday kink in night, your lives <laughs> <laughs> oh man so keith what if you had to pick a movie which one would you pick here oh yo jimbo for sure no, I'm a sucker for uh, samurai films. I love samurai and samurai TV shows and like anime samurai shows and shit. Have you seen uh, Thirteen Assassins by uh, Takeshi? No, Miyake? I want to though. Oh, That's man, a new you movie. Yeah. Right? Pretty, uh, or pretty new. I like him. Twelve or eleven yeah, or something yeah, like pretty, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like five years old. God, it's a pretty sweet movie. Like, yeah, yeah, I definitely want to see it. But I've watched Seven Samurai and I watched the t- the anime version of it. And actually, one of the films I watched uh, also during the last couple of weeks, since we were kind of had a weird recording schedule, was The Tale of Zatoichi, which is a samurai film, The Blind Samurai, which is extremely interesting and actually is... It's like a whole bunch of those, right? It's like a whole the series. Whole like series. A whole series. Yeah. To get the complete series on Amazon, it's like 120 bucks. Yeah. Something. So, yeah, there's a whole series. There's a TV series and there's a movie series. Um, I watched the original movie... Uh, which was shot in black and, black and white and widescreen as well. I think it was widescreen. Um, but the cinematography for that movie was gorgeous, and that movie was pretty gorgeous overall. Um, that plot and the characters are kind of a little lesser, but he was interesting. He goes in and scams a bunch of gamblers who think they can take advantage of him because he's blind, and he's like, sweeps them all of their money. It's pretty <laughs> hilarious. Uh, <laughs> And then, obviously, his sword play ends up being masterful because that was the whole point. Um, but, yeah, I, I love all those, like, black and white samurai and stuff like that. Um, I also watched F- Friday the 13th Part 6 because my buddy really wanted to watch it. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I like you have um, to say, because my friend who I like... But well, he has no, horrible because film tastes. No, uh, he doesn't have horrible film. He we, wanted to watch. <laughs> we generally like the same movies, but he's just been on this bender for like '80s slasher, and just was oh, like, no we shit. have to watch this. So what we decided to do was, because uh, I wanted, so I've been into like more like ex- like more extreme horror recently. Like I want my horror to be extreme and like kind of and try to be scary and whatnot. So what we decided to do was a double feature where. We he chose one and I chose one and they're both horror and we literally watched them back to back, so mm. we watched Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, <clears throat> which is like supposed to be like one of the highlights in the series. I actually haven't seen, I've seen kind of parts of like Jason X and uh, Freddy versus Jason, but I haven't seen like all the rest of them. Um, and then we did Baskin. I don't know if you've heard of Baskin or oh, not. I've seen that, yeah. Dude. No, what is Baskin? Was, it was interesting. You Turkish kinda, film. you right? got to watch a trailer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's Turkish. Um, it's about, basically, this, the quick premise is that there's these five uh, police officers who get in a car crash and then kind of inadvertently find themselves in hell, like actual hell. Wow. Um, and it's a super intense, like, 
graphic horror movie where some really intense graphic stuff happens. Uh, but it was amazing, and I really, 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 really liked it. And I actually would have given it, like, a full five-star rating had it not been for... I'm going to spoil this here, so if you don't want to, you know, listen to the spoiler, then skip ahead, like, 30 seconds. Um, I would I knocked it off a little bit because of the time loop plotline that it uses, and I don't like those because they just... It... it automatically creates too many questions and too many problems that you can't ever answer because you're it's the end of the movie you know what i mean like so it's like you know one the one of the main bad guys dies but the main guy survives but then he's the one who gets hit by the ambulance in the beginning as you know that's the that's the twist or whatever but it's like okay so what happens to all the people that died as you were watching you know what i mean like I don't it doesn't make any sense but hmm. beyond that dude some of the imagery like was really disturbing like this one of the officers walks into this room and you kind of can hear some stuff like some moaning and like grunting going on and then like he kind of shines a flashlight in a corner and you see this like person just being railed from behind and they're both completely bloody with like rags over their eyes and like wearing ragged clothing and like this person just completely getting screwed from behind while his face is being pushed into like some plate of like goop and then he looks around the room and finds out that like in each of these cells or like it's it looks like a shower almost like in each little shower stall are all these people who are like bloodied messed up just disfigured things all like having sex with each other and like eating weird bloody stuff and then they all just like attack him and like you Dude, know the really, whole thing it was super that was probably the best intense. part of the film for me because i wanted more of that i was disappointed i was i was disappointed <laughs> you, in the movie because you wanted more it, it does kind of it tones I, down from I, there actually yeah because like i thought it was going to get like super like more like more stuff way like more intense that, yeah. right so then i and then it didn't and the way i saw like the trailer and the way like the people were talking about it i thought i was going to be getting into something a little bit more like gnarly but i was like eh, i've seen like i've seen this before totally. kind of like a serbian I, film would have been 20 times more gnarly than this and and like they played this up as if it was a serbian right film, so i was like i was disappointed in that because i wanted to see more a serbian film type stuff and um, don't get me wrong like you know one guy you watch him get his eye gouged out and then like that same guy is forced to like have sex with like a uh basically they're all supposed to be demons i'm pretty sure but it's like this woman that they have chained up who's got like a skull for her head he's like forced to have sex with her as like a form of enlightenment like this devil guy is trying to get them quote yeah. unquote enlightened um and he was a cool character though he was yeah. that was actually my favorite character he's like this short guy who's got this physical disfigurement like yeah. an actual one in real life so they casted him in the role to kind of have this like you know odd looked and he's like like five feet tall so the part of the movie is that they have to have him stand on a stool to get eye level with the people that they capture to like gouge the eyes out so it's kind of comedic while this <laughs> yeah this like gnarly that, that, shit's that happening was cool. it was cool that it was weird, like cool. turkish too it was cool know? dude it was yeah. really cool but like you said there was definitely i mean if you if when you describe it to someone it doesn't sound overblown but like it was kind of overblown um, yeah. In terms of because like the first half, it's a slow burn psychological horror. So like the first half is kind of slow. And oh, the lighting was cool. 
Yeah. yeah. No, I, the whole movie I thought was fucking awesome. And then we watched A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is awesome. Oh, that movie is fantastic. Yeah. I gotta oh, watch man. that. That's, that looks super good. Dude, then the, her new film, The Bad Batch. Oh, my God. This, it might be one of my, probably my second or third favorite film of this year, I think. Oh, it's, I, it looks The Bad Batch. So wow. good. The second trailer dropped, I think, uh, late last week. Oh, man. Jason Momoa, Keanu Reeves, Jim Carrey makes a cameo as like this hobo he's in the trailer but you wouldn't know it's jim carrey oh that's Um, cool uh suki waterhouse i mean the cast is just awesome yeah it's gonna be oh it just looks incredible i I thought a girl walks home alone at night was really good and i love the stark black and white high contrast photography and the the soundtrack was really good and the western feels good i thought the I don't know. Towards the climax and the end was kind of whatever, but right. it kind of fell short of itself. But the whole surrealist kind of Western thing that had going on was good. Yeah, like the then, story was like, eh. But the but the the mood and the yeah, atmosphere and the right. cinematography was like, you know, right totally. on. They, her, right her, on. Visually, yeah. she's a fantastic director, and it's great to see a woman um, coming out as such a strong voice as a director. I mean, we don't get it as many, um, you know directors that are women unfortunately so it's cool that she's kind of a, a, a name that is starting to generate some buzz mm-hmm. which is which is yeah good that's awesome I'm, yeah. yeah i'm pretty sure if i remember reading this correctly uh the film is iranian but it was shot in la i'm pretty sure i think oh, you're I right about that i didn't realize it was shot yeah. in la that's funny i knew it was yeah. iranian but that's 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 funny yeah wow and it, ha- I, this has a very unique look. I, I, know, I really awesome. love the look. I, I really like black and white a lot, so it was right on my alley. I think, and I want to say, I think it was shot anamorphic. Oh, yeah, it totally was. Yeah, yeah and yeah, I, I, totally I, I just, I am the big, I mean, Jacob, I don't know if you can see my boner, but uh, just seeing anamorphic. <laughs> it's, it's right next to your tail. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah, I mean, anamorphic. Ooh, God. Yeah, I, it's, just, you could tell it was yeah, anamorphic for man, sure, it's, and it might have even been anamorphic digital. I don't because it, it kind it of was. had a digital was, yeah. like a sleek look to it yeah. Um, but yeah and then I watched the Avengers which I'll save for when we talk about it on our next episode nice I watched um, uh, I, I, I watched like 30 movies last week because I was at the Phoenix Film Festival I took it off work and just uh loaded up so I already recommended three but I did watch a movie that was at the Phoenix Film Festival that's older um, it was called Rosewood which was produced by John Peters, unfortunately. Um, he had his nice sexual assault thing in 2004 <laughs> that ended his career, um, essentially. So, yeah, that kind of sucked. But um, the movie itself is super good. Uh, it's about the Rosewood Massacre, which is about a uh, basically a lynching that happened in 1923 where a bunch of white people went and just killed a bunch of blacks and uh it's just a really really important film i think because it's it's it looks at lynching in the kind of chaotic nature that it is uh it's directed and written by uh both both black uh people and they you know they just did an amazing job like capturing these really interesting characters that that are fictional um who go through this experience and this just tremendous adversity and the whole thing is just really good and how the lynching kind of starts is fascinating because they um it's essential it all comes up from a lie so this uh white girl lies about 
basically that a black person beat her up when it was her husband. And then it just keeps twisting, kind of like a, a really unfortunate game of telephone where every, they start thinking that a black person raped her and they start doing all this super fucked up stuff. And it, it's it's rated, it's a hard R movie. So it's, it's really hard to watch, um, but it's incredibly tasteful and, um, you know, really, really important. So if you haven't seen it, I totally recommend it. It didn't, it did horrible in its, uh, box office run. Like it, what's it, it, what's it called again? Uh, Rosewood. Rosewood. Okay. Rosewood. Yeah. But, um, John Singleton directed it and he, you know, he did like boys in the hood and shit. Um, so yeah, told highly recommend it to, to anyone who's into, you know, films from the nineties. And, and if you want to support John Peters more, uh, you know, go for it, but you know, do it. Maybe steal it. Steal the movie. <laughs> I doubt he's getting paid for it. I'm Download sure it was a yeah. one-time. Because, or yeah. he's been, cro- you know, X'd out of the contract or something. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But John Williams uh, did the score for it, so that's kind of cool. Oh, and you can that's tell. impressive, yeah. It's very, you know, it's very John Williams. Gosh, I don't think I watched that many films this last week, but I did oh, watch good. one by Werner Herzog. Um this is one of his newer films. He actually made it, I think, a couple years ago, but it was just released this year um, called Salt and Fire. And it has uh, Michael that, Shannon, yeah. Veronica Ferrer. For, I don't know how to say her last one name. One of his more recent forays into fiction, right? Or narrative film. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. He hasn't done a, a, a narrative film in, in, a, in quite some time. He's, he's been kind of doing those documentaries. But, uh, but yeah, it was all right. Um, visually really cool. Shot in Bolivia. I, I love Michael Shannon. His, his, I just love all the films that he's in. Um, I think I wouldn't recommend. Like I wouldn't recommend this film to be like if you haven't checked out Werner Herzog films. I wouldn't go out and just see this movie. I would watch his other films first. But uh, it was all right. Um, a little. I just. I wouldn't say disappointed. It's just not my favorite of his um it's still good though i love Werner herzog so of course i'll watch anything that he makes his his stuff is fascinating you know he has he always has something interesting to say and and he just comes up with cool stuff um but yeah overall it was a decent film i would probably give it you know like seven out of ten stars or something like Mm -hmm. that um but it's something that i think if he had a little bit more time i think it would have been a better film he shot it in 16 days Jesus which is Christ. you know crazy fast so that's super quick yeah yeah so like i i think you know it was one of those ones i think maybe if he had a little bit more time to really you know um to really dive into the themes and and and, and stuff that he was thinking about um i think the film would have been would have just naturally been better i think but it was still you know pretty good film and um, it is interesting to see because there are like in the film a, a couple like mess ups, like the camera work on like t- just some of the camera work. There's like you could tell like the steady cam operator like bumped into something and the <laughs> camera like there's just a few little scenes, but you could oh. tell because it was shot in 16 days that they didn't have another take or whatever. Which in a way kind of is cool because it kind of gives like this weird authenticity to the film too. Um, but yeah, that's I think the only film that I really watched that was like a you know a full on film, and I've just been watching a lot of music videos and um, Adobe Premiere music, uh, Adobe Premiere like tutorials and stuff like that. <laughs> nice. Where are, you, where are you doing your tutorials? 
Oh, just oh, um, I've just been watching them. Oh, just like on YouTube. Yeah, 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 just on YouTube. Yeah, gotcha. so just like different, different like music video effects tutorials and stuff like that. I've you know I've been kind of just getting more into that type of thing. I kind of want to, and for my next short film idea, I want to kind of blend. Um, music video editing techniques into narrative filmmaking, I think, is what my next nice kind of kind of conjoin them a little bit, right almost, right? almost like a musical, but but more like music video musical type of thing. right, right. Not so the people in the film aren't reacting to the music that's being played, but the but the video itself is like a music video, but a narrative music video, I guess. Right, that's kind yeah. of interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I kind of see. Um, uh, God, what what's the movie with James Franco and fucking? Spring Breakers. Um, spring Breakers. I can yeah, yeah, see yeah. Spring Breakers is, is to me is kind of oh totally yeah like yeah, yeah. that. You know what I mean? Like it feels like a music video, like yeah, a really long he, music video. Yeah, because he loops sounds like Harmony Crane loops like gunshots into the. There, but there's no gunshots actually happening in yeah. the movie. But there's like you know and stuff. It's in supposed it. to be yeah. a music video though too, like yeah. style for sure. Yeah, yeah, it totally looks like that. Super cool. Um, I want to do it a little bit more extreme than that, but yeah, yeah. What you're yes, talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's a mild form of what I'm imagining you're right. you doing. Yeah, what's totally. You're, what you're talking about kind of reminds me of. Uh, there's this interesting f- short. It's like 15 minutes long. Uh, I think it's called "Blood on Your Hands" or some form of that. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not. Um, I think you can find it on like Vimeo or something. But the it's interesting because it's it's these two guys who are quarreling over this treasure or whatever that they have and they're being chased by some like uh i don't know the right word for it but some kind of like uh, extra sensory force or like these like things these things that are supposed to be sort of like paranormal or something um but uh it ends with when the music starts because the first chunk 10 minutes is like no music and then when the music starts the guy who one of the dudes who's being hanged or whatever actually starts like singing the song so it like turns into like a music video almost at the end of it it's it's this weird weird shift Uh, so that's that's what it reminds me of so you should check it out I've I've heard the title but I, I haven't watched it or I didn't realize that that's how it you know, end it or mm-hmm. that's cool. I have that's to really check odd, that out. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, well, we're at three hours and twelve minutes exactly. So, <laughs> I think it's a good Not time to <laughs> good time to wrap it up. Uh, so, if you have any questions, topic suggestions, opinions, or if you have any fact corrections, go ahead and send an email to btbfilmspodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, we're always trying to learn new things, so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can also visit our website once we have it up and running. Uh, we'll have a comment section, hopefully, and some place where we can kind of discuss, have some form of discussion for this week's episode. Uh, our intro and outro music was composed by Curtis Skinner, who can be found at skinnyproducing.com. Uh, next episode, we'll be covering fate of the furious and the avengers so we're actually recording kind of doing a twofer recording this week so i'm hoping we can kind of get them both out fairly quickly one after the other uh but we'll be focusing on kind of the evolution of action stars and kind of how they compare to superheroes we'll also be discussing tent the idea of tentpole films franchises and more so make sure you watch the films be a part of the discussion thanks for listening and happy viewing thanks for listening everybody goodbye